Dale's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Wanted to start that off appropriately. Want to introduce Black History Month appropriately with the Star Spangled Banner sung by Marvin Gaye at the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. The legend, the great one, the 
fantastic Marvin Gaye. So I want to say happy Black History Month to everybody. They gave us the uh, shortest and the coldest month of the year, but I'll take it. I'll take what we can get, baby. No negativity right here. I'm always about saying what's happening. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me, I'm away, Wendell Wallace. I'm all about bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All, all about the shalom. Wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste, konnichiwa. I'm all about that, man. Positive vibes, baby. I'm looking good. I'm feeling good. You're looking good. You're feeling good. Man, let's just do this, man. Let me go ahead and just give a podcast to you guys. Let me give it to you with everything that I've got, man. 100%. So whether you're in a car listening to this, whether you're taking a long drive listening to this, whether you're going to be listening to this at 5 o'clock in the morning that you're making the drive to go to work, I need something to pump you up, man. I need something to get you going. Man, you're going to be around people in a couple of hours, man. You're going to be dealing with folks. I need you to be positive. I need you to be up. I need you to be feeling good. I need you to be feeling good about yourself. It's my responsibility in that way to push you in the right direction. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that with love. I'm going to do that with unity. I'm going to do that with harmony. I'm going to do that with togetherness. I'm going to be doing that by giving you everything that I've got concerning this podcast and the topics that I'm talking about in this podcast. That's what I can do. I'm always talking about moving this country, moving this city, moving this town, moving the general public, moving everybody in a positive direction, in a good direction. Look at you, man. You're looking like a million bucks. Look at you. You're looking fantastic. Oh, boy, your husband can't wait for you to get home later on tonight, baby. Mm. Send the kids somewhere else and spend a few time with the two of y'all. Mm, mm, mm. Man, that's how good you're looking. It's just inspiring me now to give you what you deserve, which is a strong, which is a really entertaining, unique podcast. Wendell's World of Sports. You have come to the right place. So, just doing what I can to uh, send those positive vibes, man. Let's move this planet in the right way, in the correct way, in a loving way, in a unified way, in a together way. We can have our differences. We can have our disagreements and everything, but it's never about disrespecting each other. It's never about hate. Hate based on race, hate based on gender, stereotypes, ignorance, racism, that type of thing. Never, ever, ever. I can hate somebody for a lot of things, but I will never hate somebody because of the color of their skin, because of their gender, because of their political affiliation, because of where they live, because of their financial situation, because of anything like that. I can hate you for a whole plethora of things. Those things I am going to say no to. So we can still have disagreements. We can still have dislikes and we can still move this country in a positive direction and through sports and through what I talk about in my podcast, telling the truth, telling my thoughts and feelings, getting it out in an open, never, uh, not, not, not having any ambiguity at all. I'm just no, no black and white with me, man. You know what? If the truth hurts, you'll be in pain. If the truth makes you crazy, I'll drive you insane. My truth might not be yours, but it's mine. So that's all I'm talking about with Wendell's world. And sports. All that shit for a sports talk show? Man, aren't you going to tell me who won a baseball game and who won a basketball game and who scored what? Won't you just shut the fuck up and do that? No! No, 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 no. No, my show is more than that. Hence, Wendell's World and Sports. So, there we go. Again, happy Black History Month to folks in this country. Regardless of, you can celebrate Black History Month. You don't have to be black. You're still invited to the barbecue if you're sincere. So, happy Black History Month. This country gave us the shortest and coldest month of the year. Again, I'll take it. I'm not complaining. I'll, I'll take it. Would have preferred June. July would have been nice. 
maybe April, my birthday month. That would have been nice. But hey, February, I'll take what I can get and we'll work with that. So I'm going to be doing a segment where uh, I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to be highlighting and talking about a legendary, impactful, historical black athlete that helped change society for the better and sacrifice the quality of his life for the betterment of others. So I'll do one segment every podcast I record this month. And I will, uh, again, be focusing on a historical black athlete, again, who changed the way that uh, we take a look at things, move the society in a positive, in the right direction. And again, sacrifice some of the goodies of being famous and being rich. Sacrifice those things so he can bring betterment to others and actually gave a damn about others uh, other than himself. So for those looking to hear my share my thoughts and opinions about Tiger Woods, Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Michael Jordan. Uh not not happening. Those those will not be featured. Hence quality of life and the betterment of others. All right, Wendell's World of Sports and, and y'all talk about Floyd Mayweather doing the Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather is the charity. And you know who else was a chari- charitable fellow who helped out the poor and this and the other? Pablo Escobar. You want me to uh sit there and talk about how what a wonderful guy he was? Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. Even though Floyd and Pablo like to live the same lifestyle, take their money and use it the same ways to uh, to uh, enhance their lifestyles. Okay, so hey, let's get things started, man. Let's go ahead and get this podcast a rocking and a rolling on a soulful note. You realize that it's less than one week away from the Super Bowl. So today on the podcast, what we're going to be speaking about is, yes, the Super Bowl, the Kansas City defending champions versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Tampa Tom Buccaneers, the Bucks, whatever you want to call them. Guys are on a seven-game winning streak. The Revengeance Tour continues. Most impressive streak in the playoffs so far, winning all three games on the road. And in the process of winning those three games on the road, I really don't count beating the uh, Washington Snyder Skins because that was a team that was what six and ten, seven and nine, seven and nine. They don't they didn't deserve to be in to be in the playoffs anyway. So moving on. But when you're speaking about they beat two Hall of Famers, Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers, and as of this season beat the second best quarterback in the league in Aaron Rodgers all on the road, man, that's momentum right there, baby. And we talked about, you know, teams getting a buy and will it slow momentum. And I always spoke about, even in the regular season, near the end of the regular season, how you need to just start getting on that streak. If you're sitting there at six and five or seven and four or something like that, and you're projected to be one of the teams that's going to uh, make it to the Super Bowl, I mean, who cares about the first nine, 10, 11 weeks of the season if you have put yourself in a position to be in the playoff. Now, you don't want to be four and seven. You don't want to be, you know, six and eight or something like that. But the position that the Buccaneers were in, even after they were coming off some pretty devastating losses, some embarrassing losses, and some points when you speak about the Sunday night football debacle that they had against the Saints at home, when you speak about the tough losses that they had against the Los Angeles Rams and some other of the really good teams, I think they went on the streak where they hadn't beaten a team with a record over 500, and most of the teams they had beaten were under 500. And I think the best game that they had of the season, if you were checking, was that uh, week six, early October matchup against the Green Bay Packers, where they won 38 to 10 at home and beat up and beat down and made foolish a uh, Aaron Rodgers, who's 
projected to win the MVP this season. But after that, it was just a matter of they beat the bad teams and they lose to the good teams. But it's like once you start that winning, and hey, I mean, you can sit there and talk about, ooh, wow, they beat Detroit and they beat a couple of other teams that was bad, big deal. No, that isn't. That's a strong deal because it gets that momentum going and it gets that. It it just gets winning in their system, winning in their blood. And when you have a quarterback like Tom Brady, who isn't going to take, who isn't going to get too high and get too low in terms of, woo, we beat the Detroit Lions forty-seven to seventeen or seven, woohoo, Super Bowl, here we come. He's like, no, that's cool. All right, we beat this team. We did what we need to do. Now let's keep building on that. Let's not get too high. Let's not to get. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves, but let's just keep building on that. And the wins with Coach Arians leading the way and Todd Bowles leading the way and Coach Leftwich leading the way and the, and Brady and some of the other guys. The, the, the Buccaneers have a pretty, um, veteran squad all up and down the line. Guys like Ndamukong Sue who have been around for a while. Devin White, one of the leaders and linebackers for the defense. Seemed like the collective group of, 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 of players on that team wasn't going to get too high or get too low, but they were going to use the fact that they were winning. They were going to use that momentum to really put that confidence in themselves. And all of a sudden now, you had teams that were struggling a little bit with the um, New Orleans Saints with Drew Brees uh, injuring his ribs and some other teams who were sitting there talking about, you know, if if Tampa Bay gets on a roll, if Tampa Bay starts a moving those were one of the teams, Tampa, along with the Los Angeles Rams and a couple of other teams, the Packers included in the NFC, who, when you took a look at all sides and all phases of the game of football, they had a balanced offense. They had a, a, a pretty good defense, a good defense. I mean, Tampa was one of those teams where it's like, if those guys start a rolling. And how do you start a rolling? You start a winning, then they can get to where they are right now, which is, being in the Super Bowl. So again, they beat Breeze on the road. They beat Rodgers on the road. And uh, they're in the Super Bowl. But they'll be going against a team that is ultimately the... When you're speaking about confidence, is there anybody more confident than uh, Kansas City right now? Or even before? This is the best team in the league and the best team on paper. When you're speaking about talent. Especially if you're speaking about the quarterback. Had the best record in the league this season. Beat, I think, you could say at the very worst, the fourth best team. You could say at the very best, the second best team in the conference uh, championship. The Buffalo Bills beat them convincingly. All this nonsense about, hey, you know what, Buffalo. Because Buffalo now, let's not shortchange what they did coming into the playoffs. This was another team that was scoring a gangster amount of points. And Josh Allen was, um, you know, putting up a, a historical for someone of his stature, putting up a, a very impressive season, and the defense was getting better, and it, and it was a cute pick, it was a chic pick to go into the playoffs and say that, hey man, you know what? And I I, I raised the question, I'm not hiding from it. I went raised the question. Wait a minute, if we're speaking about a team that could give the uh, Kansas City defending champions a run for their money, everybody, including me, said it would be the Buffalo Bills. And that's including if the uh, if Kansas City made the Super Bowl. Like if Kansas City made the Super Bowl and played the Green Bay Packers, I would say that in the conference championship game against the Buffalo Bills, it was a hellacious game and a very satisfying victory. 
for Kansas City to have, which in turn could be like, you know, we once we got past Buffalo, yeah, I mean, you know, Green Bay, nice, good, strong, Rodgers and everything, but shit, we passed our major test with the uh, game, the AFC Championship game against Buffalo. I, I thought it was going to be one of those type of battles, but no, 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 no. It was a situation where Kansas City was like, yeah, let me remind you guys again who the team to beat is. Thank you very much. And again, it went back to the point where it wasn't like we could sit back and say, oh, if Sean McDermott would have done this, oh, if it wasn't for that bad call, oh, if it wasn't for that one turnover, oh, if it wasn't for that lucky play. No, you walked away. I know you did. You walked away from that game saying, yeah, Kansas City's the best team between those two. If they play 10 times, probably Eight times, Kansas City's going to win. And that was one of the eight times that the defending champions did what they had to do, which gives them an opportunity to win the Super Bowl back-to-back. would be the first time since uh, the 2003-04 New England Patriots to do so. So, man, you know, it was, uh, it's going to be, a, it's going to be an interesting game. It's going to be an interesting game. Major drama, the most interesting talking point in the game, of course, you got to be focusing on the Matchup between the GOAT and the GOAT in waiting, Brady Mahomes. Arguably the greatest quarterback to play the game when we're speaking about uh, Brady versus the best current contender to reach that status. I don't know. Again, when we talk about these best ofs, I never sit there and be like, he's greater, he's greater, he's greater. When we're speaking about legendary performers, as I always say, you know who should be figuring out who the best quarterback of all time is? Um, it should be people like Tom Brady, Roger Stallback, Peyton Manning, Joe Montana. Get all of those legendary performers. Get them all in the room. Don't put mics on them. Don't do anything like that. And let them discuss who the best among them all is. Uh, and uh, give them all truth serum. And then, you know, put them in a room and let them figure out. Let them discuss who the greatest quarterback amongst them is. They are uh, much more... Capable, they're much more qualified to decide that than me, you, or anybody else. I don't care how many years and decades we've been watching football, you've been watching football, I've been watching football. I don't give a damn how many years, decades someone's been covering and how well they know this person. I don't give a damn. No one knows more about the game of football. No one knows more about quarterbacking. No more, no one is more qualified to decide who the greatest anything is than the actual people who have played the game and played it at a high level. So you know what? Joe Montana, Dan Marino, John Elway, uh, Brady, Manning, put all those guys in a room and let them figure out who the greatest amongst all of them are. I'll just say that, you know what? In that argument, in that discussion, Brady needs to be there. So that's what I'm talking about on this one. So Tom... If Brady wins his second, seventh Super Bowl, what is this going to be for his legacy? What are we, what are we dealing with now? Because he's already had more Super Bowl wins than any player in NFL history. He was tied with linebacker Charles Haley, who won five Super Bowls in the late 1980s and 90s. He won a couple with the 49ers before moving over to the uh, Cowboys and winning his final two or three or something like that. But before uh, Brady and Haley were tied with five, but when the... When the Patriots beat the Rams 13-3 to in the Super Bowl a few years ago, Brady moved up a notch, and uh, last time I checked, Charles Haley ain't coming back. Don't call it a comeback because Charles is kicking back, relaxing the Hall of Famer that he is, making sure that his kids are all right. So 
as of right now, Brady has the most championships with six. So winning seven, what would that mean? What would it mean? Are we speaking about now we're putting him in rarefied air with the... Is he going to be elevated even more past any of his contemporaries, past anybody who's playing the game of football right now? Do we need, do we now need to put him in the stratosphere? Do we now need to put him with the LeBrons and the Tim Duncans and the Kobe's and the Derek Jeters guys from different sports teams, team sports who have dominated? And now let's just compare them. I think the most apt comparison would be with uh, LeBron James around the same generation, around the same fan base, the same age group in terms of 20, 30 years from now are going to be telling their grandkids about how great and how awesome it was to uh, be able to watch LeBron and Brady play, both guys defying age for their respective sports. Brady still doing his thing at 43. LeBron still the best player, if not the best player, one of the top two or three players in the game right now, despite the mileage that he's put on his body. So those things, Brady still top of his game in terms of being a quarterback that can lead a team or be part of a team, be an important part, important piece of a team that can lead uh, that team to a championship. LeBron still coming off a MVP, finals MVP and winning his fourth ring, going for number five. So all of those things, I think more than any, I think more than Duncan or Kobe or anybody like that, I think the comparison in terms of if Brady wins number seven, not going to put him with Jordan, not going to put him with Russell, not going to put him with anything like that. But I think, I mean, are we going to move? He, he's, he's right now far and away above any football player who's played the game. Yeah, you can talk about Bradshaw with his four rings. You can talk about Joe Montana with his four rings. You can talk about those guys. But I think as far as winning is concerned, in terms of that discussion, I think Brady was six. Can uh, rest assured that he has a pretty strong argument to, uh, to, to make in that regard. But I think in a situation like this, man, we start moving him to a different sport, different legends of different sports, to uh, start comparing. And it's hard because Brady is just one of 22 players to determine if a team wins or loses. Brady's not playing defense. Brady is not playing special teams. Brady's not running the football. Brady's not throwing passes to himself. Brady isn't blocking for himself. Brady is not even calling the plays for the most part. So his impact or any player as far as playing football is concerned, his impact is not as strong or not as important as a basketball player when you're speaking about shooting, dribbling, passing, making teammates better, rebounding, defense, and everything. And we're only dealing with five players, uh, 10 players on the court at one time. So the the schematics are, are different. But I think we start moving Brady to that type of discussion, to where Duncan, Kobe, LeBron, those guys had a real impact on on the game because of the relative, as I mentioned before, because of the fact of how they can impact the game in much different ways than a football player. So we'll see. We'll see. I always thought, I wonder, and I'm wondering on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Hello. I'm thinking this. Over, let's say, let's, let's take the year 2030. Let's go 10 years from now. We're going to go on the assumption that LeBron and Brady are done. Or let's just keep it to the NFL. 
Let's say, for instance, six, seven years from now, 10 years from now, 12 years from now, whatever. Brady's done this, that, and the other. I wonder if the Brady-Mahomes relationship, and let's, let's say in the vacuum that's left by Brady in terms of his dominance is concerned over his career. Let's say, for instance, in, uh, let's go in nine years. Let's say Mahomes wins, including this one. Let's say Mahomes win five championships, which would bring him to six. Yeah, that makes it a little bit closer. Let's say, for instance, that uh, he wins three. Let's say he wins three, which gives him four. And Brady wins six, right? He leaves with six. Are we going to be having the same type of relationship in terms of discussing who's greater? Is, the, is, is Brady Mahomes discussion going to be the NFL version of Michael Jordan and LeBron James when it comes to discussing who's better? Because we do that now with LeBron. We do that now with Jordan. As LeBron is going for his fifth NBA championship and he had the Lakers right now playing very well and they're the preeminent favorites. That was early in the season. But as of right now, you would have to say either the Lakers or the Clippers, maybe the 76ers are the favorites to win the NBA championship. As of right now, small sampling. But that would give... LeBron five, and he means he's gone to the NBA Finals. What? How many times he's been to the NBA Finals? Like, like ten times? Some nonsense like that. So we we're talking about him going to the Finals for the eleventh time, and by the time he retired, this guy could be the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. He could be in the top three or four in assists, and could be in the top five or six in rebounds. But yet and still, people aren't going to be giving the Jordan lovers, the Jordan sheep, the ones who think that Jordan could walk on water. The ones who think that Jordan could do no wrong, the ones who continue to call Jordan the goat without any, without any adherence to wanting to hear an argument on why LeBron should be considered in that conversation, they're always going to point to six and zero, six and zero, six and zero, six and zero in the finals, six and zero, six and zero, and it's amazing because I always, I always thought, why don't they do that shit with Tom Brady? Why don't the Joe Montana lovers? I saw Joe Montana. I grew up in the Joe Montana era. I saw him play with the 49ers. Why, why is it that the Joe Montana lovers, the one who are going to die on Joe Montana, best quarterback forever, Hill, why don't those guys come out and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, Tom Brady, sure, he won six Super Bowls, but guess what? He lost three of them. Joe Montana, four Super Bowls, four for four. He was great. He was awesome. Take a look at those numbers. Take a look at this. Take a look at that. Take a look at this. I don't give a damn about Tom Brady doing this. I don't give a damn about Tom Brady doing that. It's all Joe Montana, Joe Montana, Joe Montana, Joe Montana. I mean, why don't the Joe Montana lovers be just as annoying as the Michael Jordan lovers when it comes to discussing anybody who might threaten the the the, the, the throne, the king, that's King James, but threaten the threaten the, the the moniker of greatest player of all time? Why don't the why don't the Joe Montana lovers become become more vociferous in that regard? So, geez, man, that, that's good. Brady's going to win. If Brady wins number seven and he's going to be seven and three, I mean, you know, there should be Montana fans talking about, well, big fucking deal, big fucking deal. Yeah, you know, Bill Belichick, uh, you know, in his defense, I mean, you know, he was responsible for him. Uh, uh, he didn't call the plays like Montana did. He didn't have to face any of the great defenses. Who did he face in the uh, Super Bowl that was in the, of any ilk in terms of quarterbacking is concerned? This guy lost the Super Bowl to fucking Eli Manning, not once but twice, and lost it to Nick Foles. And we're going to say that he's better than Joe Montana when Joe Montana had to go up against defenses that could, I don't know, 
actually hit a quarterback, that actually treat a quarterback like football players. Right now, Brady gets to sit in the pocket and throw the receivers who can't be hit and can't be touched and all those type of things. You breathe on Brady. They call it 15-yard uh, roughing a passer. So this guy has had all the advantages of playing quarterback on his side. And you also have to remember that Joe Montana, Joe Montana, Joe Montana played in the era where he had to go up against Bill Parcells in the defense, had to go up against Buddy Ryan in the Detroit, in, in the uh, Chicago Bears, the 46 defense. He had to go up against uh, Reggie White and the Philadelphia Eagles with Seth Joyner and Jerome Brown for a while, God rest his soul, and, and those type of guys. And, he had to go up against those really, really tough teams. He had to go up against quarterbacks like Dan Marino and John Elway and Phil Simms and Joe Thiesman and, well, the last two I'm reaching. But you know what I get in my draft, man. I mean, you know, Joe Montana, the competition was so much tough. The NFL back when Joe Montana was playing, it didn't have the Jacksonville Jaguars of the league. You had every game, every team that Joe Montana played in his era, you know, pound for pound was much, much more difficult than what Tom Brady had to go through. Why don't the Joe Montana lovers come out and ruin a wonderful, festive week for Tom Brady and getting ready to play in the Super Bowl? Why don't we ever have that argument? Why isn't that argument ever on SportsCenter? Why isn't that argument on First Take? Why isn't that argument even on the Shannon and Skip show? Of all the ridiculous things that Skip likes to talk about in terms of LeBron this, LeBron can't do that, Nick Saban can't do this, he can't do that. I, I think in the lunacy, why doesn't he bring up Joe Montana? Joe Montana, he's better than um, Tom Brady. He's better than Tom Brady. I mean, why not? I just laid out a pretty decent argument. Don't know if it holds any water. Like I mentioned before, I could bring that, I could bring those points, I could bring those talking points to uh, Marino and Elway and Brady and Manning and say, here, fellas, you guys discuss this and see how valid it is. But, uh, yeah, I'm just going to be interested to see for the Brady lovers. And Brady's a good guy, but Brady in his own way, he really hasn't been as polarizing as, say, LeBron or MJ was. He's just not, type of, not that type of guy. In the uh, front of the camera, he really doesn't have that type of... Uh, charisma or persona he's he's more tim duncan than he is say a kobe bryant or something like that so I, i'm just interested in as i mentioned before i think mahomes has a lot more uh pizzazz to uh what he does which i think for his generation because the mahomes generation going up against the brady generation in terms of going to be having that fight on who's going to be better in the next five to seven years is going to be interesting it's going to be interesting. So those are the type of things that I'm looking at that I'm going to be seeing if it's going to be coming up in the upcoming week leading to the Super Bowl. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. We're also going to be discussing some NFL news. Matthew Stafford was traded over the weekend to the LA Rams in a swap of starting quarterbacks. LA giving up draft picks. The Lions are going to receive a Third round pick in 2021, a first round pick in 2022, and a first round pick in 2023. The Rams are hoping that that first round pick in 2022 and 23 will be 28, 30, 32, somewhere, somewhere around that range. The deal cannot be made official until the start of the new league year, which is going to be on March 17th. Quite sure those guys will be able to pass the physicals and everything like that. So I'm not too worried about that. But what I want to, uh, discussed with you is the impact it's going to have on the Rams and where that puts them now in terms of contenders for the NFC championship. 
because depending upon the situation with Green Bay, what's Green Bay going to do to try to improve the team around Aaron Rodgers? Are they going to improve the team around Aaron Rodgers? If they keep with the status quo, what's going to be the attitude of Aaron Rodgers? Can Aaron Rodgers next season at 38 going to have the same season that he had this season? Was Aaron Jones, the running back, a one-year anomaly? Uh, one year anom- what's the word I'm looking for? Anomaly? Yeah. Is he a one-year wonder in terms of the production that he put up, or is this going to be something where we can be counting on him to perform at this consistent basis year in and year out? So you have to take a look at that situation for Green Bay. Tom Brady at age 44, what effect is he going to have in Tampa Bay? Drew Brees, probable retirement in New Orleans. I think they're going to be going in a different direction, so they won't be the same contenders. So that, that opens up a spot on the chair once the music plays for them to sit in, speaking about the Los Angeles Rams, the San Francisco 49ers are still without a franchise or even above average quarterback. There's discussion that they might be trying to do a QB swap with the Minnesota Vikings for Kirk Cousins. I don't think that would uh, propel the 49ers to uh, be real contenders, even with a lot of those guys on defense returning from injury, namely Nick Bosa. So again, the Rams are in position. The the uh, Seattle Seahawks are revamping their entire philosophy in terms of offense is concerned. So there's some openings. There's some situations. So I can understand the Los Angeles Rams saying, hey, you know what? With all this uncertainty going on, including our own, let's go ahead and let's take care of one of our major weaknesses, which is in the quarterback situation. And let's bring in the quarterback to where Sean McVay doesn't have to call the perfect game for the Rams to have the best chance at winning. We can actually put some responsibility into the quarterback and have him win football games. Not every play has to be called expertly and executed you know, perfectly. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. And with the, with the, um, with the trade that the Rams and the Lions made to swap quarterbacks, is there going to be any collateral damage? For QBs wanting to be traded or released or teams possibly looking for a quarterback. What I'm saying is, what does this mean for a Carson Wentz? Deshaun Watson, who's still with the, still with the Texans. What does it mean for uh, Matt Ryan and, and teams like the uh, Washington Snyderskins or the Chicago Bears, the Indianapolis Colts, Denver Broncos, Patriots, Saints, San Francisco 49ers who need an upgrade at the quarterback position. What are we talking about here? What does this mean in terms of the Lions, not the Tigers or Bears or my, but the Lions and the Rams making uh, this uh, transaction, taking Matthew Stafford off of the uh, potential uh, potential teams uh, that needed a quarterback? What does that mean? Are we going to now maybe go after a Matt Ryan? Does... Do teams get a little bit more desperate to get Carson Wentz? Does the asking price for Deshaun Watson or does team now feel the need to even go more as far as giving up more for Deshaun Watson? What does it mean? What does it mean? Are these teams, I just named Washington, Chicago, New England, Denver, are they going to focus on maybe getting a quarterback in the draft? I know Trevor Lawrence is not going to be there. He's going to Jacksonville. But what does it mean now for a team in terms of getting a quarterback? Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones. What, what does it mean for, for those guys? And what does it mean for those teams? And what does it mean for the, for the NFL draft? For a team like maybe a Cincinnati, a team that might not, or a Los Angeles Charger, a team that's 
somewhere in the top seven, top eight, who don't need themselves a quarterback. All of a sudden now, if you have a team like the Patriots or a team like the Bears or a team like a Washington who might be moving up, who might be looking to move up to try to get themselves a, a Justin Fields, what does that mean for them trading with a team like Cincinnati and how can they get a win-win situation to get that draft pick to where both of those guys, both of those franchises coming out in a positive way. So those are the, those are all of the uh, ripples of the Matthew Stafford trade to the to the um, Detroit Lions. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Also on the program today, Deshaun Watson, Mister Watson, I presume. As of this recording, I'm recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. Still a Houston Texan. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> Did you hear the audio of the uh, GM for the Texans, Tom Casero, with his statement about the future of Watson staying with the organization? Listen to this. Thanks, David. So before we uh, before we take some questions, which I'm sure there's a few out there, um, I just want to address a couple things here quickly before we get started. Um, so organizationally, um, just want to reiterate our commitment to Deshaun Watson. Um, he's had a great impact on this organization, a great impact on a lot of people, a great impact on this team. And uh, we look forward to the opportunity to spend more time with him here this spring once we get started. And, you know, we have zero interest in trading the player. Um, we have a great plan, a great vision for, for him and for this team and his role on our team. And we look forward to the opportunity to spend more time with him here this spring. There we go. Your homeboy, not mine. Just want to reiterate our commitment to Deshaun Watson. We have zero interest in trading the player. We have a great plan and vision for him. We look forward to spending more time with him. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Sure. No problem. Okay. Hey, look, man. I mean, Desario, I mean, Casario's not going to come out and be like, yeah, we need to trade him. Please, please get him, get him off our hands. There's nothing we can do about this. Of course, he's got to put up that front. But Deshaun Watson sitting there going, oh, really? Uh, zero interest? Okay, we'll see about that. When is Deshaun Watson going to turn full heel? That's what I want to know. When is he going to make that heel turn? Like with Sheamus last night on Raw, kicking Drew McIntyre in the head, announcing his heel turn. Fella, what is... um? When is Deshaun Watson going to come out and publicly bro kick Tom Casario in the head and just say enough is enough? When is he going to do the Apollo Creed move to get a, to get a rematch with a Rocky Balboa, even though Rocky was like, I'm not fighting you, I'm not fighting you, I'm not fighting you. How much do I have to humil- humiliate you? How much do I have to publicly eviscerate you before you finally say, fine, let's go ahead and do this. Let's do this. So, uh, I understand what Casario was doing, but as a fan of the Texans, are you buying this? What's your confidence level? Are you buying what he's selling? Whose baby is that? How much is that? Are you buying? So, this is what new, what, I guess, again, God bless David Culley, 27 years in the assistant, finally gets the head coaching job. I'm, I'm like, Casario's like, well, wait a minute. You mean you're still not interested in Deshaun Watson is still not interested in joining this team? He still wants to be traded? We got him we got him a black head coach for heaven's sakes. Damn, if he knew he wanted to be traded, we just would have gone ahead and hired Josh McGowan. 
at the head coach. We got him a black head coach and he's still not happy? A black head coach in Houston, Texas? That ain't great. Man. But um, here's David Cully and his thoughts and feelings about uh, Deshaun Watson and being able to coach him allegedly. The only thing I knew about this whole situation at that point was is that I was being interviewed for for this job to be the head coach. And I did know at that point, Deshaun Watson's a Houston Texan. He's a quarterback of the Houston Texans. And that's all that I was concerned about. And that's all I knew. And, and whatever was been said about what was been, what he wanted to do or he didn't want to do. All I know is this, having been in this business this long, you know, he is a Houston Texan and I want him to be a Houston Texan. And the reason I'm in this position today is because I knew he's going to be a Houston Texan. And so that the outside stuff that was being said was irrelevant to me because the most important thing to me is that at that time was figuring out what can I do after talking with Nick and his family to become the head coach of the Houston Texans. You got to love that man's enthusiasm. You got to love his passion. You got to love his, his genuine happiness of finally getting this job after 27 years of being an assistant. But man, um, you know, within your joy and enthusiasm, man, be careful. The only thing he knew about the Deshaun Watson situation was that he was a Houston Texans and the quarterback of the Houston Texans. Man, come on now. Come on. He is a Houston Texan. I want him to be a Houston Texan. The reason I'm, I'm in this position today is because I know he's going to be a Houston Texan. Whoa, 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 whoa. The reason I'm in this position today is because I know he's going to be a Houston Texan. You know? Does Deshaun Watson know that you know? Because something tell me Deshaun Watson is unaware that he is going to be a Houston Texan because all of the things that have been coming out of the camp of Deshaun Watson, not let's he's just like, you know, bullshitting us is that no, I'm not going to be a Houston Texans. So if I'm Deshaun Watson and I have this guy come up to me, probably a coach that I didn't ask for or a coach that really doesn't excite me or anything like that. And he's up there talking about at a press conference with a big smile on his face, talking about, I know that I'm going to be a Houston Texan, even though I'm doing everything humanly possible not to become a Houston Texan. I think Deshaun Watson just kind of dug his heels in a little bit deeper into the fact that, no, I am not going to be a Houston Texan. No. Coming from my perspective, I'm up here talking about, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And then some guy I've never met, never had a discussion with, I'm assuming this, of course, some guy who I've never met and this, that, and the other, I'm not on board of the hire and anything like this. And he's going to tell me that, oh, yeah, uh, Wendell Wallace is going to be here. And I'm very adamant that I'm not going to be here. Guess under hell or high water, who's not going to be there? Me. That's just me speaking. But from all accounts, from the outside looking in, it looks like Deshaun Watson was like, nah, man, fuck that bullshit. This motherfucker's up here talking about, I know he's going to be a Houston Texans. Fuck you. Let's, let's see how much you know when OTAs and summer activities and those guys trying to get a hold of me uh, start to commence. We'll see what happens. Talking about all the outside stuff that has been said is irrelevant to him. What, what outside stuff? You mean the outside stuff that's been coming from him? That's been coming from his camp? That shit ain't irrelevant. 
Another like, damn, man, you're just kind of like digging the hole a little bit deeper for you, ain't you? So his main goal after talking to the owner and the GM was to become the head coach of the Houston Texans. That's fine. Hey, man, go for it. There's only 30-something jobs, uh, you know, available. So, hey, go for it. I'm not uh, clowning you. I'm not doubting you. I'm not disparaging you for that. But to get up there on the microphone and get up there and talk about, yeah, I know he's going to be a Houston Texan. I mean, it's like, hey, you know what? That's between them and the owner and this, that, and the other. They say that they're working it out. And I'm just happy to be part of this organization and moving forward with whoever we have. Hopefully, it's with Deshaun Watson. But whoever we have going with us, I'm going to do our best. I'm going to do my best. And I'm going to put us in the best position. And we're going to play hard. And we're going to play tough. And we're going to be uh, a team that the community can rally around and be proud of. So who's ever here, I hope it's Deshaun Watson. But who's ever here, I'm telling you, I'm going to give it my 100%. And we're going to give it our 100%. And we're going to do everything everything that we can to win football games. That would have been a lot better. Only thing I knew about the Sean Watson situation, you know, I, that I, I still want to be a Houston Texans. I want the Sean Watson to be the quarterback of the Houston Texans. I would love to have the Sean Watson listen to what I have to say about my plan to have him be the quarterback of the Houston Texans. I would love to have the opportunity to sit down and talk to the Sean Watson and explain to him the position or explain to him the direction that I'm going as a head coach uh, and why it would be fortuitous for him to uh, believe in what we're doing, believe in what I'm doing, ask around. My reputation is solid. So I'm going to do everything humanly possible to try to impress Deshaun Watson and the rest of those guys in the locker room that I am the right man for the job. This, that, that, that's, for me at least, that would have been perfect other than saying, I know he's going to be a Houston Texan or all that outside stuff is irrelevant. No. No, the, what he's, what's been going on and what he's saying is very relevant. Very, very relevant. This Sean is a smart man. He's an intelligent man. He's a strong young man of, a, you know, good Christian background and faith. He's done a lot for the community. Oh, I'm, I'm taking, uh, I'm taking into account and I'm respecting everything that that young man that Deshaun Watson is saying. Absolutely. So I'm hoping and I'm praying and if there's anything that I can do to help resolve the matter in a favorable way, Maybe Casarios and Cal McNair told him not to go in that direction. But for me, that's would be a little bit, maybe it's irreparable. Maybe, you know, it's, you know, maybe, maybe this is just the, 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 the horse is too far out of the barn. Or maybe there's just too much toothpaste that's left the tube for him to say anything. But, uh, I, I think if I'm, David Cully, I mean, because I still have to face those guys in the locker room. I still have a team to coach. So those guys are taking a look at my press conference also. And they're judging me also. Maybe some of those guys who have, uh, maybe they played for him and maybe they have a better idea. So, you know, they're around the locker room with their, with their teammates or they're on Zoom calls with their teammates or they're texting with their teammates talking about, yeah, I know he sounds a little whack or yeah, I know that might've been bullshit or yeah, that was kind of an eye raiser and everything. But you know, I work with uh, Cully when he was at Baltimore. He's a good guy. I, I worked with DC when he was this and he was with that. Oh yeah. I played for a guy who played with Cully and he said that he's great and he's a great coach and he'll put you in the right situations and everything like that. So, you know, maybe the teammates and taking a look and watching this, press conference and deducing exactly what he's saying, Coach Cully is saying, maybe, you know, they'll, they'll go down that, that route, that avenue in assessing or getting that first impression of him. But uh, to come out there and talk about Deshaun Watson is going to be a Houston Texan 
all that outside stuff that's been said is irrelevant. That's, eh, something I wouldn't have said, but, I mean, you know, the guy's a grown man, 65 years old, wife, husband, not a wife, he's a husband, father, maybe grandfather, I don't know, been in this game a long time, so, hey man, do do what you need to do, you know the situation a lot better than I do. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, so, you know, we heard Coach Cully, we heard Tom's, uh, Tom, uh, the GM, tell oh, the name, excuse me again. Come on, man. Think, 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 think. The name, uh, Casero. Jeez. Tom Casero, the GM of the, of the, uh, Texans. We heard what he had to say. So if you're Deshaun Watson, where do we go from here? How serious are the Texans about keeping Deshaun Watson? And how serious is Deshaun Watson about not playing for the Houston Texans? You know, Watson's under contract with the Texans. So technically they don't have to trade him. He could attempt to force the issue by not showing up to off-season workouts or being combative with the organization. As I mentioned before, take a play, go in the playbook of uh, James Harden, and, you know, start showing up and <laughs> start showing up in strip joints without wearing a mask and, and all that type of nonsense. I don't think that's Deshaun's character, but he could, he could make a big stink and maybe do some things, maybe do some sit-ups in front of his, uh, in front of his driveway and call the uh, local press over there. I don't know. I don't know what he could do, but we hope we hope it doesn't get to that point, but you know Watson had to return or any return any of the repeated phone calls from the organization. He's deleted them from his social media account, which is so 2021. So insiders have told Pro Football Talks Mike Florio that Watson is willing not to show up no matter what it may cost. Hmm, what is it going to cost, Wendell? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, he would be facing $50,000 fines for each training camp he would miss. And, um, he's scheduled to, uh, and is scheduled 10.4, $10.54 million salary for his upcoming season would be in jeopardy. In addition, pro football talks, Mike Florio also said that Watson might owe Houston $5.4 million annually over the next four years to account for the unearned signing bonus. If he decides to skip games, that's a that's a strong deal, there, ain't it? I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, in uh, in February, it's easy to be like, "Fuck that, man! I'm not coming in! I'm not coming in! I'm not coming in!" Woo! When you start missing them game checks, and your agent comes to you and says, "Hey, man, um, you know, am I going to be able to get paid? I mean, you know, am I, you know, am I going to be able to, uh, you know, what, what's going on here? Because you know." I don't know what his endorsement package is, but, uh, you know, he ain't, he ain't Aaron Rodgers. You might want to call up Jake from, uh, State Farm and maybe get him, uh, give him, get him, uh, Deshaun discount or some shit like that if he's going to be missing a game check. Check. So who's likely to blink first? Is it going to be Watson? Is it going to be Texans? It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I'll give you my thoughts and opinions about that later on in, on the podcast. The Windows World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I'm also going to be getting into the NBA discussion. I know, I know I said that, you know what? I ain't going to be doing this bullshit every single podcast when we talk about the NBA. There's more to the NBA to talk about besides the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets. And I wasn't, I was not going to talk about the Brooklyn Nets. Then I saw that game against the Washington Wizards on Sunday. Then... I rewatched the game the next day. And I said, 
goodness gracious fucking sakes alive. I've got to update. I've got to update you on the drama. These are the days of playing no defense with the Brooklyn Nets. What others? General no defense. You know, general hospital. As the no defense days turn. Santa Barbara playing no defense. I don't know what what are the uh, what other uh, soap operas there were. I don't even know what's going on with them right now. But goodness gracious, sakes alive, man! Watch that game. The, 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 I watched that game with the Wizards and the uh, Nets. I watched it twice, as I mentioned before. The second time was worse than the first time. <laughs> I mean, I rewatched it. It was like this game is even more pathetic. The second time I watched it, it was it was a atro- it was atrocious. Now you're thinking, what are you talking about, man? I mean, you know, we're 147 or 149 or 146 and the, you know, five points scored by the Wiz near the end of the game and this, that, and the other. It was unbelievable. It was, if, if you hate watching the NBA All-Star game, then there's no way you could sit there and watch that game and be like, boy, that was exciting. No, that was, that was an embarrassment, man. That was an embarrassment. I never thought I'd say that. James Harden didn't play that game, but any game that had Kyrie Irving and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant playing in it, offensively it was it was fine. Defensively, it was beyond atrocious. It was beyond embarrassing. 149-146. That was the least entertaining game I've seen in a while. Westbrook had 41, 10 rebounds, 8 assists. Bradley Beal, who spent much of the first half pouting and body language horrible. He scored 37 points, 24 in the, I think the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter, the fourth quarter, Beal had 22 points. Westbrook had 15 points. The Wizards as a team scored 48. The Wizards as a team scored 48. One more time. The Washington Wizards as a team scored 48 points against the championship contending, elite contending, Playoff going to Brooklyn Nets. 48 points from the depleted, at the time, 3-12 and Washington Wizards. That's a team in the Brooklyn Nets that's supposed to be serious contenders to win an NBA championship? 48 points against Garrison Matthews and against uh, Davis Bertans and against Mo Wagner? That's supposed to be a team in the Brooklyn Nets that's supposed to be serious Championship uh, material, man. The Nets is just I mean, for the Nets. Kevin Durant had thirty-seven. Joe Harris at thirty, at a career-high thirty points. Kyrie had twenty-six. Brooklyn led by as many as eighteen. But who gives a fuck when you don't play any defense? Who cares? And man, did Brooklyn miss a lot of easy shots, makeable shots. Let's put it this way, because the Wizards didn't play any defense either. But the Wizards are a train wreck. We know this. You know this. Everybody knows this. The Nets have won four in a row, but. I mean, it was just, look, the ending of the game, down 146-141. Beal hit a three-pointer with eight seconds left to go. Garrison Matthews. Garrison Matthews, Jesus. Deflected Joe Harris's inbound pass to Westbrook, and he made a three-pointer with 4.3 seconds left to go. The next possession after the ball was knocked out of bounds by Westbrook on a curl pass to uh, Kevin Durant. The Nets had the ball right side underneath the basket. Of course, Rudy Hachimura fell asleep. Uh, Timothy Kaburak. Went uh, went straight down the middle. Straight down the middle of the lane. Caught the ball from Irving on the bounce. And he missed a wide open layup. Right there, front of the rim, missed a wide open layup. With 2.9 seconds left to go. 
So there you go. Two of the four wins from uh, the Wiz this season have been against the Brooklyn Nets. One at home and now one at the uh, one at uh, one on the road and one at home. So James Harden didn't play, set out because of a thigh contusion. The first game he's missed since being traded from Houston to Brooklyn on January 13th. Since the since the Harden trade, again the the, the trade that was supposed to catapult the Brooklyn Nets into Serious contenders for the NBA championship. The Nets have had a 122.6 offensive rating, which which is the best in the league, and if they keep it up, would be the best of all time, says Harden's been on the team and been in the line, lineup. So that's the glass half full part. Uh, the glass, glass half empty part is they also have a 120 defensive rating, which, if they keep it up, is the worst in the league and would be the worst of all time. And they're speaking about another trade as far as J.J. Redick is concerned. There's been reports by uh, 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 in the Athletic talking about the uh, the Nets are interested in J.J. Redick. And it's come down between the Celtics, 76ers, and the Nets. What what are the Brooklyn Nets going to do with J.J. Redick? Is J.J. Redick going to be able to uh, is, is he going to be able to guard the paint? Is he going to be able to guard the basket? Is he going to be able to rebound? Is he going to be able to play some defense at 36 years old? No, 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 no. They have a J.J. Redick on their team. His name is Joe Harris. What What do the Brooklyn Nets need J.J. Harris, uh, J.J. Redick for? Well, they can't guard anybody. 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 <laughs> watch the game against, I swear, man, watch the highlights of the Wiz and the Nets. It's like, once they got past their initial defender, the Nets were like, fuck it. Just hurry up and score. Go ahead, score. I mean, Westbrook was playing bully ball, and as soon as he got six feet away from the basket, Irving was just like, fuck it. Just go ahead and score. Screw it. We're done. We're good. Just hurry up and score so we can get the ball back. That's that's how you're going to win a championship? Wide open three-pointers? Transition defense beyond atrocious? I mean, really, if the Wiz were, was on offense was halfway decent and the Nets made half their shots or half of the makeable shots they could have, uh, that they missed, they could, this game could have been like 170 to 167. Somewhere, Paul Westhead is blushing. The former coach of Loyola Marymount, you know, where he coached Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers and back in the late 80s when, um, LMU, Loyola Marymount used to run up like a hundred and, 60 points a game, and then he went to the pros with the Chicago Bulls, and he tried that bullshit, and they were, and, and the pros were like, nah, I don't think so. That this, You ain't playing, uh, St. Mary's, you ain't playing Portland, you ain't playing, you know, you ain't playing them schools. You're playing real men, real coaches, real basketball, real this, that, and the other. And, you know, Bulls were losing. This was before, this was before, um, was, was it before Jim J came into town? I know that he was coaching this, was it Denver? I don't know. Was he coaching Denver? I know after Loyola Marymount, he either got a job with the Bulls or the uh, or the Nuggets. One of those two. All I remember is his teams were getting blown out like 147 to 106 or 125 to 89. Because, you know, he ran that, that, that running gun nonsense. And it was just like, no, nah, man, we ain't doing that. You can't win a championship like that. So, um, yeah. So Paul, Paul Westhead... Must have been watching this game, and you know he must have been having the biggest grin on his face watching nobody play defense and having guys score at will. 
It was it was something else. It was something else. So, Whew, man. Oh, and by the way, here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast, yours truly, Wendell Wallace. I'm going to also. Now, you know what? I'm not going to end with the Georgetown Hoyas win over Providence. Good for them. Five game losing streak over. They're back in action tomorrow on the road against Creighton. I'm proud of my Hoyas. I am. I am. I wish they could have played the freshman a little bit more. I wish TJ Berger could have gotten to the game. Wish Kobe Clark could have gotten some minutes. I'm up here watching the game at Jabari Sibley. The um, the freshman is up there. And, you know, he's out there. He's not. He's just, he's just out there playing hard, trying hard. And it's like, hey, man, you better play as hard as you can because you know, regardless of what you do, you ain't getting back in the second half. And Ewing went with his, uh, went with four guys or three guys who aren't going to be coming back next season. Um, Blair, Pickett, and Belay. Who I have to give credit to? Chudier Belay is the reason why we won that game. I, I know I give him a lot of shit uh, because he just can't play at a high level on, on a consistent basis. But he was 19 points, nine rebounds. He was the main reason why they won. And he's been playing better. He's been playing better. I mean, he's still. I would still sacrifice his minutes for Sibley and Clark, but as I mentioned before, he's been playing better. He played better against Syracuse. I can see why he plays. He plays defense. He rebounds. He's a much more physically built player to to handle some of the rigors of the inside of college basketball as of right now, much more than Clark or Sibley. So I, I can understand why he plays. I just don't understand why he's got the green light that he has to be shooting threes and trying to take people off the dribble and create plays. That, that I don't understand, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, 19 points, 9 rebounds. Good for Chudier. Good for Mr. Belay. And I hope that you're uh, doing your work and doing what you need to do to get that Georgetown degree. That is the most important thing because none of these cats right now are going to be playing in the NBA or playing basketball overseas so it's important for those seniors man go ahead and get that degree more so than scoring buckets and getting rebounds and bricking shots and not finishing at the rim and getting muscled under the paint and making bad decisions which uh, you guys have been doing for the uh, latter part of i don't know four years now wendell's world of sports so that's the uh that's what i'm going to be talking that's what i'm going to be talking about people are like well haven't you been talking about that already i want to get more in depth into uh those topics so Let's go ahead and uh, let's start the podcast now, and uh, let's boogie. Alright, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, 
A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Kind of gave you the rundown first segment, long first segment of what I want to uh, get into a little bit more and talk about. So let's get into it, man. Beginning the podcast again, Super Bowl 55, less than one week away. What are the storylines for the game? What are we going to come up with there? For Kansas City to come to first back-to-back team, first team to win back-to-back championships since New England in 2004. The victory against Tampa would officially begin the next dynasty, I guess, in the NFL with Kansas City. Their three-year run overall has been pretty pretty impressive from 2018 right now to the present. 38-10 and 10 overall, three consecutive divisional championships, two conference championships in a row, two consecutive Super Bowls in a row, two consecutive Super Bowls in a row. That's redundant. But I'm saying if they win the Super Bowl, that means going back-to-back. So... In the uh, league of the NFL, it doesn't take much really to begin the germation of a dynasty. I'm not saying that the dynasty is, you know, rocking and rolling 100%, but, you know, if, if Kansas City goes ahead and wins the Super Bowl and Mahomes doesn't go nuts, Mahomes doesn't have any type of injuries, uh, they, as, as much as it's ridiculous that Eric Bieniemy still doesn't have a job, the fact that the majority of the coaching staff is uh, coming back, so it won't be any uh, philosophical changes or anything like that. I mean, how for the next three to four to five years, where where do you expect Kansas City to uh, to, to be in the NFL? You expect them to be the champions again, unless something happens to Mahomes, maybe something happens to Tyree, maybe something happens to Travis Kelsey, one of their core players going down, but you can say that about anybody in the NFL. And they even showed when Mahomes went down in the 2019 season, last season, where he had a, a, a injured kneecap when he tried the quarterback sneak. That was the season that the uh, Kansas City team won the Super Bowl anyway. So they win this, man. It's a situation where it's like, yeah, call them a dynasty. Call them a dynasty in the making. Strong dynasty in the making. Win the Super Bowl, they're 8-2 in the Playoffs the last three seasons, they've won 21, or they've won 20 of the last 21 games that Mahomes has played in. It's it's there. It's there for the taking. And then we can start. I don't think, well, I don't, I don't, nobody I don't think is going to come close to what Belichick and Brady did. I, I just don't see anybody even playing that long or coaching that long. Andy Reid is not going to be that guy that's going to be around another 16, 17 seasons. I don't think. At his age and everything else, I don't, I don't think that he's going to be that guy. So even that combination of Belichick and Brady, which lasted 20 years, that's, that's not going to be happening between Mahomes and Andy Reid because Mahomes, excuse me, because Andy Reid basically is not going to be making it another 16 years as the head coach of the Kansas City football team. So, um, but Mahomes, right, with this victory over Brady, can start um, start his uh, building his resume for uh, you know being at the table in the next fifteen years when they start talking about who's the greatest and this that and the other in the year twenty thirty six. I mean, he can Mahomes can point back to okay, remember when I beat you, put you out the pasture for being a competitor for the championship when it was officially my league 
That was back in uh, twenty the 2020 season, the season that we had to uh, deal with COVID and the pandemic and all that type of nonsense. That was the year that I officially announced that there's a new sheriff in town. My name ain't Reggie Hammond. It's Patrick Mahomes, and uh, I'm going to be the man for the next 10, 12 years. He's already the MVP. He's already the best player. He's already the quarterback, the wonderkind, and everything like that. But it's it's like, okay, you uh, beat Tampa. You outduel Tom Brady. Or you beat Tom Brady, regardless of Brady being the age that he is and the responsibility that he has for the Buccaneers. It's it's something where it's kind of like, hey, man, passing the torch almost. Like when Hank Armstrong lost to Sugar Ray Robinson. Like when Rocky Marciano beat Joe Lewis. One of those type of deals where it's kind of like passing it along, where Larry Holmes beat the shit out of uh, Ali back in the day. You know, that, that it's with that type of thing. Oscar De La Hoya beating up uh, Julio Cesar Chavez with that patch past uh, torch me and past moment. Well, that could be happening officially if Kansas City and Mahomes beats Brady and the Buccaneers. So that's one of the storylines that we're going to be looking at. Can Tampa finish his journey? Improbable? I wouldn't say it's improbable. Well, if you're taking a look at the James Winston years, you would say it's improbable because you would be thinking for the Buccaneers to win a Super Bowl with Winston as their quarterback, it would be improbable. But you substitute Winston, even with a 42, 43-year-old Tom Brady, upgrade. Now we're talking upgrade. So can Tampa finish this journey by beating Kansas City in the Super Bowl, which I think would be one of the greatest stories in the past 10 or 15 years? The Tampa already beat New Orleans on the road in the divisional playoff after losing the two regular season games. They beat Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers 30-20 to at Lambeau Field. The Buccaneers will be the first team to play the Super Bowl game in on their home field, Raymond James Stadium, the closest we've come to a team playing in their backyard with Super Bowl fourteen when the Los Angeles Rams faced the Pittsburgh Steelers at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. About 11 miles from LA. That's what I'm, that's what I'm told. That was the uh, game. Vince Ferragamo was the quarterback for the Rams. Was Wendell Tyler still on that team? There was something about Wendell Tyler that kind of, that kind of caught my attention. Not too many Wendells running out there in the world today. So it's like Wendell Tyler, huh? Get on down, get on down. So that was a good, that was a good, uh, playoff game. Jack Youngblood played that game with a broken leg, but you know, too much Stallworth, too much Franco, too much Terry Bradshaw. Game turned on a pass interference call for the uh, Steelers. Bradshaw passing it downfield for uh, Stallworth. Put him over 200, 250, something like that. Tough fought, hard battle between those two. I think Pittsburgh was the overwhelming favorite. But uh, Pittsburgh pulled away in the fourth quarter. I think they won the game 31-19 or some shit like that. But uh, yeah, so that was the closest that a team has played at home. Oh, and by the way, the difference between the Rams playing in the um, Rose Bowl in Pasadena back in, I believe it was 79, and the Buccaneers playing at Raven James Stadium for the Super Bowl in 2021, um, the Rose Bowl actually had fans. <laughs> it was a packed, it was a packed house, and they went through the media week and Radio Row and all that kind of stuff, I believe. I believe, I don't know what it was as far as the media was concerned in uh, 1979, but I'm quite sure that there was a lot more media down there this week or that week 
in Pasadena and LA or whatever than it was in uh, Tampa this week. No Radio Row this week or any of that nonsense. It's been pretty dormant because of the uh, pandemic. So I believe, I believe, what, 22, 26,000? That's what they're going to be dealing with, or that's how many people are allowed in the building. Even though Mike, uh, Michael Wilbon of PTI was kind of like, yeah, yeah, anyway, since it's Florida, there'll be 40, 45,000 people in that stadium. Still, still not going to be a sellout. So that's going to be a, uh, that's going to be a big difference. And the fact that, you know what? The, uh, the Kansas City team, they already played at Raven, Raymond James Stadium. Of course, the stakes were a lot different this season when they played in the regular season, but, uh, no surprises, nothing nothing like that. And the fact that Kansas City has already played in the football game and they won, you know, it's a situation where it's like they're not going to be wide-eyed. They're not going to be like, Ooh, wow, the Super Bowl, this, that, and the other. So that's going to be an advantage that they're not going to have. Of course, we know with Tampa, even though, you know, key players like Chris Godwin and Mike Evans and those guys might be like, man, this is cool, first time ever. For those guys, they could just lean on Brady in terms of, you know, the routine because for TB – being the guy who's been in the league for 21 years and made it to nine Super Bowls. So every couple of years, on average, he's going back to the big game. So he can kind of navigate, you know, what and how and this, that, the other. Can't navigate the emotions. They're going to be pumped. They're going to be juiced. They're going to be ready to go when you're speaking about Leonard Fournette and the guys I just mentioned. But, again, they can rely on not just Tom Brady, but also Gronkowski, who won a bunch of uh, Super Bowls also. So it'll be interesting. Someone like Nambi Kinsu. Number two pick out of Nebraska was supposed to be this generation's or his generation's Reggie White, and he had to go through his nonsense. Some of it self-inflicted about him being a dirty player and his journey through the NFL, getting back now to try to win the Super Bowl with the uh, Bucks. Fitting, be interesting. A lot of decent stories, a lot of good stories. Something I wish that uh, people would be paying more attention to, something that I wish ESPN and and the um, talking head shows would uh, give it more clout, give it more attention. It's the fact that the um, the way Bruce Arians, the head coach of the Buccaneers, has assembled this coaching staff. Diversity, my man. Two coaches are women. Assistant defensive line coach and the assistant strength and conditioning coach are women. And all of Arians' top coordinators are black. When you're speaking about Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator, Todd Bowles, Former Jets head coach, he's the defensive coordinator. Keith Armstrong, the special teams coach. And Harold Goodwin, assistant head coach. They're all black. So there we go. And it's not a matter of charity. It's not a matter of uh, Bruce Arians being woke or anything like that. He took a look to find a staff that he could put together that would uh, best fit uh, what he wanted to do. And he came up with uh, what Leftwich, Bowles, Armstrong, and Goodwin. And they just happen to be black. And I think that's, that, that's absolutely fantastic. We, we, the bar keeps moving every time that we reach it. Every time they tell us, well, if you reach this goal, if you put yourself in this position, it'll enhance your opportunities to get jobs. You know, that, that, that's what they say. When the discrimination and the prejudice and the ignorance is there in terms of the hiring of black head coaches, those who are deaf, dumb, blind, and ignorant to uh, the situation always has an excuse in hand. Like, no, 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 it has nothing to do with skin tone. No, 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 it had nothing to do with racism. No, no, it had nothing to do with that. You see, it just so happens that the NFL is moving toward a offensive type of uh, game plan, and they need uh, 
offensive coordinators. And it just so happens that most of the offensive coordinators happen to be white. And that's the reason why. It has nothing to do with skin tone. Or, well, you know, because uh, this coach here is the one who's really putting together the game plan. And he's the one that's uh, calling all the plays. So because of that, uh, you know, you really don't. Uh, have this coach. His coach is not as qualified as you think he is because, you know, after all, it's Bill Belichick calling the offense or calling the defense or Andy Reid is the offensive guru or, you know, risk it and biscuit Bruce Arias. That's his offensive philosophy and he has his fingertips all over the offensive game plan. So, oh no, it has nothing to do with Leftwich. Oh no, it has nothing to do with uh, this guy or this black guy or Eric Bienemy or anything like that. And every time we say, oh really? Well, let me see here. We've got Leftwich as the offensive coordinator as the we have Eric Bieniemy as the offensive coordinator um you're speaking about well you know you need to be the uh quarterback's coach or you need to be something like that if you're going to be doing a position running back's coach is not going to get you a job in the NFL as a head coach tight ends wide receivers they're not going to get you a job as a coach in the NFL special teams for black folks they're not going to be able to get you a job in the NFL now of course of course Joe Judge and John Harbaugh came a different route to get those jobs. But, hey, this, hey, but, ah, who, hey, ah, but, ah, yeah, see, but, ah. So, every time they put the goal, every time they put the requirement in front of us, and we go ahead and achieve it, they move the goalpost, or they move the achievements, or they just try to think of something else out of their ass. So, here we have offensive coordinator. Okay, the league is moving toward offense, so we need more offensive coordinators to get consideration for jobs okay Eric Bieniemy, very involved in the um not just the the play calling but also the uh the formation of the game plan putting together the game plan uh, despite the fact that we see all these other clowns get jobs who don't deserve them over Eric Bieniemy, bad hires bad interviews bad bad press conferences See the Eagles head coach and Dan Campbell of the Detroit Lions. Eric Bieniemy can't get a job. Byron Leftwich couldn't even get an interview. Could not even get an interview. I'm going to be talking a little bit later in the program, in the podcast, on the netcast, about there's a plan in Houston to have Josh McCown eventually take over from Dan Cully in a few years to be the coach of the Houston Texans. He's going to be employed by the team as first the quarterback coach, then the offensive coordinator, then the head coach. So it's, he's the head coach in waiting. Eric Bieniemy can't even get an interview? I'm not saying that Eric Bieniemy deserves a job. And me, myself, and I, all three of us think that Bieniemy might, might be a couple of years away from really being a serious contender or really being ready to be a head coach. Because especially when you're black in this league, and you get a head coaching position, you you have to come out the gates and you have to be very good. You have to do very well because most of the time, black head coaches ain't going to get second or third chances. So if a black coach does poorly in his first job, chances of him getting a second job are a lot slimmer than if he was white. So if Byron Leftwich and the rest of these guys, Eric Bieniemy, that's why I didn't want Eric Bieniemy taking the... um. Detroit Lions job. That's a nowhere job. That's a bad organization. That's a failing organization. They have failed multiple times with multiple coaches, except for Jim Caldwell. And what was the last time Jim Caldwell had a serious opportunity to get a job? Okay. But, so it's like, look, I want Leftwich to be super ready and get the good fit. 
and get a really good fit in terms of him being a head coach. So, yeah, I wouldn't want Byron Leftwich. I don't think Byron Leftwich right now is ready to be a head coach in the NFL, but he's damn sure ready to start the process of going in there, interviewing, seeing how it's done. From that standpoint, what does he need to work on? What does he need to get better at? Experience is the best teacher. So take advantage of going in and interviewing for those jobs, and you might not be able to get the job with that squad, but you might be in the interview with an assistant general manager who two years, three years later gets a job at the GM of another franchise who's looking for a head coach. And because him and Byron Leftwich made that connection, it's like, oh, you know what? I'm definitely going to interview. One of my first couple of interviews is going to be with Byron Leftwich because I remember when I was the assistant GM at this organization and he came in to interview for the first time. I loved his philosophy. I loved his stature. I got to know him a lot a lot better and with our locker room I'm quite sure that he could you know he could be a really good leader so let me see and reach out to him and give him a true sincere opportunity and chance for this head coaching job that's what Byron Leftwich is that's what these interviews for Byron Leftwich means now I mean unless you're Mike Tomlin Byron Leftwich isn't going to be getting a job at uh, a head coach and when I say unlike uh, when I used to uh, the man like Mike Tomlin Mike Tomlin came in uh, when he interviewed for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, he was there just to kind of start the process of him trying to uh, learn the interview process, get get better this, that, and the other. He was a he was a position coach with Tony Dungy's staff in Tampa when he went in the interview. And the Roonies liked him so much, they were like, "Screw it, give him the job." And you see how well that turned out to be. So that's why I, he, that's why I brought up the name Mike Tomlin when I'm speaking about Byron Leftwich. Unless it's a Mike Tomlin situation where Leftwich is just so impressive that a strong organization says, you know what, let's give him the job. For the most part, we 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 know that uh, we know that Leftwich is not going to get the get a head coaching position this season, but it starts him on the path of learning the process in doing that. So. That's that's my deal. In fact, here's what Arians said about Leftwich. He was on the uh, Rich Eisen show, uh, Bruce Arians. Here's what he said about Leftwich and the major contributions he's had to the office and to Tom Brady. Yeah, I can't say enough about the job he's done. I mean, it's just remarkable. Uh, you know, Tom is such a great, great player, but having left that system after 20 years, and ours is a lot different how we do things. And Byron's been the middle guy that's just done all the work. And, uh, I mean, people give me way too much credit because I don't really. He does it all. And uh, he calls the plays. And uh, I'm really, really upset he didn't get a head coaching interview. Yeah, let's get into that a little bit. Why, why, why do both offensive coordinators in this game you could say that for? Couldn't you, Bruce? Well, Eric's, Eric's got his interviews. You know, once you get the interview, it's your job to get the job. But Byron right. didn't even get a call. And, uh, and, I think people give Tom Brady and, and Bruce Arians way too much credit and not enough credit for Byron Leftwich. Arians says he's done a remarkable job and he's done all the work. People give Tom Brady and Bruce Arians way too much credit and not enough credit to Byron Leftwich. Amen, brother. I hear that. I hear that. So, you know, hey, this is one of my many arguments. Cause we, we, we always hear this shit. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you knew when Brady was going to go to Tampa Bay. 
You knew it was if he does well. Oh, Brady this, Brady that, Brady this, Brady that, Arian this, Arian that, Arian, Arian this, Arian that. Oh, yeah, and Brian Leftwich has done a pretty good job, too. No, 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 no. No, it's no way. Ain't no way. Because, you know, Brady got a lot of the credit, no doubt about it. But Josh McDaniel was the one who was supposed to be like, you know, it was more in sync with, you know, Brady, great quarterback, McDaniel putting him in the right uh, position. So it was a match made in heaven, a marriage made in heaven between McDaniels, the great offensive coordinator, and Brady, the all-time great quarterback. Now he goes to Tampa and it's, you know, Brady, great quarterback, bringing that winning culture, this, that, and the other, which he did, no doubt about it, but... It's Arians, it's Arians, Arians philosophy, Arians coaching, risk it, no, no risk it, no biscuit, this, that, and the other. No, it's all about Byron Leftwich. So, yeah, Tom Brady deserves credit. Yeah, Bruce Arians deserves credit. But a lot more credit needs to go to Byron Leftwich. Byron Leftwich is not the main reason or not the, is not the only reason or should take the majority of the, uh, of the praise for uh, putting the offense for Tampa Bay in the positions or, you know, helping them make it to the Super Bowl. But, man, he's, he's not getting not getting enough of the credit. And it shows by the fact that he's not getting the interviews that he, that he should be getting. I mean, hell, Houston couldn't interview this guy. Some of the more downtrodden teams, Detroit, couldn't interview this guy. Really? Just give him an interview? Brady's the main reason why Tampa Bay has been so successful. You know, I... So because of that, of course, you know, Leftwich, this, that, and the other, he's riding the coattails of Tom Brady. Really? Because y'all didn't say that shit about Bill O'Brien, Josh McDaniel, or Charlie Weiss. Those guys got jobs when they were offensive coordinators for New England and worked with Tom Brady. Adam Gase got two coaching jobs in less than five years riding the coattails of Peyton Manning and teams heeding the recommendations of Peyton Manning to hire this guy. Gase got a job with the Jets. Got a, before that, got a job with the Dolphins. Did nothing with Sam Darnold. Did nothing with Ryan Tannehill. But he worked well with Peyton Manning. Well, shit. <laughs> what, what the hell? So, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm speechless. I just, uh, you know, it's just another, another day, another way it is in the NFL. Another hurdle, another obstacle we have to overcome. We have to, uh, we have to break through, and I'm, I'm quite sure once we get through that, there'll be another one. You you would think, because the NFL is so much on trends. Remember when McVay was at his hottest, Sean McVay, the coach of the uh, Rams? Remember when he first came into the league, young 30-something-year-old, and he set the world on fire, he set the league on fire because of how great of a coach he was, the boy genius, the Mozart of the NFL coaching profession, the wonderkin, the Doogie Hauser, whatever you want to say. And it was like every single organization was trying to find a, the next Sean McVay. So you had Zach Taylor, and you had Matt LaFleur, and you had Charles Nagy. You had all of these guys who were from the Sean McVay tree. McVay, who looked like he was about 18 years old, had been a head coach in the NFL for a one or two years. Did a great job. He is a great coach. Really good coach. Great offensive coach. No doubt about it. No flipping doubt about it. But it was like from that, from that small sample size that uh, McVeigh showed as a coach, 
I mean, you, you got the quarterback coach for the Rams. You got the offensive coordinator for the Rams. Any, anybody on the offensive side of the football who was young, charismatic, and white got a job somewhere, whether it was in Chicago or Green Bay or Cincinnati. Now, the Matt LaFleur has turned out to be an excellent hire. But, you know, Zach Taylor, not the president, Zach Taylor, he's dead already. But Zach Taylor, the uh, head coach for the Cincinnati Bengals, he's won, what, three games? So far in his career, four games so far in his career. You know, the coach for Chicago, the jury's out on him. So the NFL always goes by these trends, but you really didn't see that much of a trend when the Indianapolis Colts <clears throat> played the Chicago Bears in the Super Bowl. When it was Tony Dungy versus, um, Tony Dungy versus Lovey Smith. There wasn't like this rash hire to go get Tony Dungy clones or Lovey Smith clones. Number one, they made their bones on defense. And number two, it was, I guess, widely perceived that one of the main reasons or the main star or the the, the person who had the most impact on Indianapolis winning the uh, Super Bowl was Peyton Manning. So even as a Hall of Famer, Tony Dungy didn't get the uh, respect that uh, he should have for what he did and reworking the Indianapolis Colts organization and such. And Lovey Smith never got the uh, respect that he deserved. Now, you're going into a Super Bowl here. I'm getting all choked up just thinking about it. You're going into a Super Bowl here where you have both offense coordinators for the teams being black. How about this? If these guys are too gutless or too blind or too ignorant or too stubborn or too stuck in their ways to hire a black head coach, let's just say, fuck it. At least it starts the trend of maybe black coaches on the offensive side of the ball who are right now running back coaches or wide receiver coaches, maybe they'll get an opportunity to become offensive coordinators. And that'll start the trend. But we'll see. We'll see. Again, every time we uh, move in a direction toward uh, getting an opportunity, um, folks move the goalposts. But uh, this, 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 championship or the championship game between Tampa and Kansas City is going to be a lot more. It's going to mean a lot more to a lot of people for many different reasons. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. That's me. What's happening? Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir. 
Monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum. Namaste. Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Talking about the Super Bowl matchups. Speaking about the Super Bowl. Speaking about coaches getting hired, not getting hired. All of those good things, man. A whole lot of things to get down on and discuss. I hope that you're doing everything that you can to uh, make this world a better place to be. I think that the one way you can do it by listening to Wendell's World in Sports. Hey, hi, hi, hi. All right, man, here we go. Um, So I guess when we're speaking about the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 55, which is going to be happening this Sunday, the primetime discussion of the game will be surrounding Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes. Spoke about it a little bit in the uh, first segment. Thinking about this, let me throw this at you. Best Super Bowl quarterback matchup since Brady and Seattle's Russell Wilson in Super Bowl 48 in 2014. There's been some other marquee quarterback matchups in what they look like to call the big game. I mean, you had Seattle versus Denver the year before Super Bowl 48, Russell Wilson versus Peyton Manning, Green Bay versus Pittsburgh back in Super Bowl 45, two future Hall of Famer, Famers and generation greats, Aaron Rodgers versus Ben Roethlisberger, generational greats, all-time greats, Super Bowl 44, New Orleans, Indianapolis, Drew Brees versus Peyton Manning, Green Bay versus Denver Denver way back in 1997, where you had Brett Favre versus John Elway. This one's for John. And then, of course, uh, 1984, two of the generational all-time greats, Dan Marino versus Joe Montana, when the Miami Dolphins went to Palo Alto, played the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 19. So there's been a lot of really good matchups in the Super Bowl. My personal favorite has always been, was always, will always be, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Dallas uh, Cowboys when Terry Bradshaw went up against my man Roger Stallback. So those were always my personal favorites. Uh, one of the best Super Bowls I've ever seen that I can remember had a big impact on me was Super Bowl, I forgot what it was, 12 or something like that, where Jackie Smith dropped the uh, pass in the end zone. God bless him, he must be the sickest man in America. Where he dropped that, and the Steelers won 35-31. Lynn Swan catching the football in the end zone. Beautiful catch. Franco Harris running in for the touchdown. One of the best games I saw as a youth watching that game. One of the first Super Bowls that I can remember watching. Uh, Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh and Dallas was always a Roger Stallback fan. Yes, even living and growing up in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area was still young enough not to fully digest and, in, and understand the Cowboys-Washington rivalry. I just knew Roger Stallback was the man. And I liked the show Dallas because I was in love with Charlene Tilton and Victoria Principal back at a young age. So it was like, yeah, anything Dallas. Who shot JR? I did right in the melon so I can own a ranch and start fucking Sue Ellen. Um, that, yeah, Dallas, anything related to Dallas, used to watch that every Friday night at nine, right after Love Boat, and was Fantasy Island? I don't know, man, I'm getting off track. But basically, so it's a good matchup between Mahomes and Tom Brady, a lot of things to be talking about. I guess if you're thinking about, um, Brady, Elder Statesman, it's gonna be the biggest challenge for him since playing Seattle in the Super Bowl, 49. His first Super Bowl against Curtin Warner and the Rams, LA Ram and Super Rams in Super Bowl 36 in 2002. You know, in that game, if anybody remembers, it was so long ago. If you think about it, Tom Brady wasn't Tom Brady 
going into that Super Bowl or even during the Super Bowl. He was more of a game manager. That was, that was man, Bill Belichick. That was Ty Law. That was Richard Seymour and those guys on defense, man. That was the calling card for the, for the New England Patriots. Brady went 16 of 27, 145 yards and a touchdown. His most memorable part of the game and maybe the, time where it was kind of like oh hey wait a minute now Tom Brady is someone we might need to be start paying attention to here was the uh, moment where you know he took the uh, team from the uh, I forget what it was he took took the team no timeouts tie game at 17 let them down the field to kick up to uh, to uh, set up Adam Vinatieri's 48 yard game winning field goal the time expired which I still think it's one of the biggest upsets in Super Bowl history, and I'm quite sure Mike Martz is still getting death threats from Marshall Falk on why he didn't give him the ball more. But, you know, another game that uh, Brady has played in Super Bowl-wise, he's got 0-2 against Eli Manning. He's 0-1 against Nick Foles. <laughs> Nick Foles. He's um, 1-0 against Warner, DeLome, Jake DeLome. Remember Jake DeLome of the Carolina Panthers back in the day? Watch that game in Lake Tahoe. Special dedication to my main man, Curdy B, one of the greatest weekends I've ever had. Um, so that was, he beat Jake DeLome, he beat Kurt Warner, he beat Donovan McNabb, he beat Matt Ryan, Russell Wilson, Jared Goff. Not what we would call murderer's rope, but hey man, you know, it's a team game and he did what he had to do. So whenever you think about Tom Brady, his legacy wouldn't lose on Sunday, not damaged if he loses. I don't care if he goes out there and he plays like Peyton Manning did against the uh, Seattle Sea Seattle uh, Seahawks when they were um, playing in New York City and he looked absolutely old and awful. Doesn't matter what Tom Brady does in the Super Bowl. The fact that he was the quarterback on a team that got there and he played a primary role, not the main role, but he played a primary role in then getting there. Man, there's nothing that uh Brady in one game can do to uh, tarnish his legend, you know, whatever. This isn't going to be a Willie Mays moment. This isn't going to be some embarrassing moment. Even if it was a quote-unquote embarrassing moment, it doesn't matter. The man is 43 flipping years old. He could go out and throw 15 interceptions. It wouldn't make any difference. Nothing, he can only enhance it. He He cannot detract it. Because if he wins, if he wins, and if he beats Mahomes, and he beats the best team in football, not just for the past three years. I'm thinking about, well, yeah, I guess since Mahomes came into the league. So, yeah, for the, for the past three years, if Brady can do this, an argument can be made that he's the greatest athlete of his generation in team professional sports. Brady looks at that shit and like, man, whatever. Come on, man, get out of town. But seriously, if he does this, 43 years old, wins the Super Bowl, even if he, even if he Peyton Manning's the Super Bowl, like Peyton Manning did against Carolina, even if he John Elway's the Super Bowl, like he did when he was quarterback in the uh, Broncos against the uh, Green Bay Packers, even if he quote unquote writes the coattails of a defense in a running game to uh, win the Super Bowl, it don't matter, man. If he wins seven, put him up there. Strong argument. Greatest athlete of his generation in team professional sports. He's in the same VIP section, sitting at the same table as LeBron, Kobe, Tim Duncan, Derek Jeter. He's right there. He's right there. Possibility him and LeBron are going to be food fighting for uh, who should be at the head of the table. And don't think Kobe and Tim Duncan are going to sit back and watch all that passing review without having them to say uh, something about uh, where they belong 
at that table. So it, it's going to be something. Out of all of those names I just mentioned, and I just mentioned them here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with me. One of the the thing that the athlete I think are synonymous in terms of this comparison and who we need to kind of single out to compare with Brady. It's got to be James, right? It's got to be uh, LeBron. They're just one of two athletes in the four major professional sports, football, basketball, baseball. All right, we'll throw in hockey, fuck it. But they're just one of the two athletes in the four major professional sports to make it to 10 championship appearances over the last 30 years. 10! 10! Brady has made nine Super Bowls with the New England Patriots. He won six of them, of course. Now, first year with the uh, Buccaneers. This is his 10th Super Bowl appearance in, what, 21 years? LeBron made his 10th NBA Finals appearance of his career. He's been there with Cleveland, Miami. Now the Lakers. He's won four of them with at least one of... He's won four of those championships with at least one from each team. So he won one with Cleveland, two with Miami, and then one uh, last season with LA. Brady is six and three in championship game appearances, and LeBron is four and six in his ten final trips to the uh, NBA um, to the NBA Finals. Everybody just wants to sit there and be like, "Well, you know, LeBron. You know how LeBron gets clowned because he's four and six. Could have been three and seven. All these type of things. He's like the A Rod. He's like the Wilt Chamberlain of uh, winning championships. Should have won more. Didn't." Well, let's put it this way, man. We take a look at the, uh, we take a look. If we're going to be comparing, if we're going to be talking about, if we're going to be discussing in terms of generational great, who's better, who did more and more impactful, this, that, and the other between Tom Brady and LeBron. Okay. Brady went six and three in championship games. I read you the names of the quarterbacks that he faced. Who in that group other than Kurt, Kurt Warner, who in that group are we talking about are Hall of Fame quarterbacks? Definitely ain't Nick Foles. Definitely ain't Jake uh, DeLome. Jeff, def, definitely is not Jared Goff. Eli is going to get some, Eli is going to get some conversation, discussion about it, but what's Eli Manny's claim to fame for even being considered Hall of Fame consideration? It's just two victories over the New England Patriots, the dynasty of that era, and the best quarterback of that era, arguably, Tom Brady. So if you take a look of the quarterbacks that Tom Brady had had gone up against, and look, I, I, I hate when they do that comparison, like, look at the quarterbacks. Well, last time I checked, Nick Foles, Jake DeLome, Donovan McNabb, they weren't playing defense. They weren't playing defensive tackle, defensive end. They weren't rushing the quarterback. They weren't calling out the plays on defense. They weren't covering anybody on the defense. So let's go away from quarterbacks that they faced or quarterbacks in the Super Bowl that Brady has faced. Take a look at the defenses that he's had to go up against. The St. Louis Rams at that time, average. The best defense he went up against was the Legion of Boom. Maybe the best quarterback he went up against was Russell Wilson. Arguably Kurt Warner when Kurt Warner was still rolling in his prime. So what I'm saying is, for the most part, just like Jordan, for the most part, Brady had the edge. Brady was on the better team. Brady had the better coach. Brady was just in a better situation to win those championships. LeBron, on the other hand, if you take a look at his six losses in the uh, NBA Finals, 
only one of them you can take a look at and say, man, that was huge. <laughs> nah, man, the, the, the team, you, your your team was the better team. You should have won that series. And that was the Dallas Mavericks. Take a look at the other five losses. He lost twice to the Golden State Warriors, who at the time were rolling, one of the best teams in the last 20 years. You take a look at the San Antonio Spurs, the first time he made the NBA Finals. That was, he had Booby Gibson and... Ilgaskis and a bunch of ragtag teams going up against a mini dynasty in the Spurs of Parker, Ginobili, and Duncan. Um, he got blown out by the Spurs again, the revenge Spurs that season for a game to one when basically, man, that was the end of the run for the Heatles, that team that had LeBron, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade, Shane Bettier was done at that time. Ray Allen was going to be done at that time. It was one of those where it was kind of like, hey, man, we're not the better team. We're going to lose. Let's just hurry up and get the series over with because uh time for me to go ahead and do something else. So we're, we're taking a look. I'm thinking about the teams that uh, LeBron lost to. He lost to the Spurs twice. He lost to the Warriors twice. He lost to the Mavericks. Did he lose to the Warriors three times? Who else did he lose to? I don't know. But basically... For the most part, the teams that he lost to in the finals, that team was the better team. And the teams that he beat to win the finals, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, the Miami Heat, and Spurs Heat, Spurs Heat, oh, and the Warriors, in two of those, two of those four finals that he won, Miami or his team was the, his team was uh, better. So, yeah, so I take a look at it. Brady, LeBron, trying to compare who's better, who's the generational great. Going on the assumption that Brady wins NBA, excuse me, NFL title number seven, Super Bowl number seven. And people are sitting up there saying, yep, better than LeBron, better than LeBron, better than LeBron. I don't know about that. Both those guys won championships. They probably should not have won. Lost championships. They probably should. They lost... They won championships that they should have lost, and they won championships that, uh, what am I trying to say here? They won championships that they should have lost, and they lost championships that they should have won. There we go. Brady, as I mentioned before, winning Super Bowl forty nine over Seattle, 28-24. Oh, you remember that, right? 26 seconds left remaining in the game, Seattle. At the goal line, decided, like, let's make a hero out of Russell Wilson instead of Marshawn Lynch. Ah, bad decision. 26 seconds left in the game. Seattle decided to pass the ball instead of handing off the Lynch. Malcolm Butler intercepted the Russell Wilson throw. That was the end of the burgeoning dynasty known as the Legion of Boom and the, and the uh, Seattle Seahawks. Then Brady winning Super Bowl 51 over Atlanta, 34-28 in overtime in 2017. That was the game that New England was down 28-3 to with nine minutes left to go in the third quarter, and they had to have everything go right, and they did. And basically, Kyle Shanahan decided that he was going to keep the pedal to the metal. Don't blame him for that. I don't blame him for that. I don't blame him for that. But everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The defense for Atlanta ran out of gas, and Brady was like, Super Bowl. So those are the two Super Bowls that Brady won that was kind of like, yeah, you know what? I don't know. I mean, you know, I hate to use the word luck. Luck is, you know, but, but fortunate. Ball had to bounce the right way. You know, the gods were with you. The stars were aligned, whatever you want to say. And the Super Bowl that Brady should have won, but he lost. Of course, we all know Super Bowl 42 against the Giants in, tw- in uh, 2017. 
2008 where he lost 17 to 14. That that game, that team, man. You're speaking about New England. That was the best. I said it before. That was the best, arguably the best regular season team in NFL history. They were one game away from going 19 and 0. They set NFL records with what 590 points. They were averaging about 37 points a game. They scored 75 total touchdowns. Had a net differential of. 315. The defense was fourth in the league. Randy Moss was outstanding. I think he caught 25 touchdown passes in his redemption year after after basically tanking a performance in Oakland. Tom Brady rejuvenated because he got Randy Moss through for 50 touchdowns and set the world on fire. I don't know if Tom Brady had ever been better. I don't think I think that might have been the best of Tom Brady. Now this now this the the, the, the slide back down has been has been slow and steady. I mean, he didn't fall off the cliff, but mark it down, man. 2008, that guy, Tom Brady, was fucking unstoppable. So they lost that game to Eli, 17-14. Then they lost Super Bowl 52 to Philadelphia in 2017, 41-33, where you had Nick Foles. You want to blame that on Brady? You want to blame that on Bill Belichick? Be my guest. But that was a... um, that was a game, it was like, man, how was New England not blowing these guys out? How was New England with that defense letting Nick Foles do what he's doing? He completed 28 of 43 passes, 373 yards, three touchdowns, one interception, and of course he also caught the one-yard touchdown pass on a trick play named Philly Special, but named the uh, Super Bowl MVP, storybook ending, put him right there with the uh, Timmy Smiths of the world, the cornerback uh, for the um, Dallas Cowboys. What was that kid's name? What was that guy's name? He's not a kid. He's a guy. What was that guy's name? Oh, Brown. 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 I forgot what it was. But the cornerback, Dilo Donald, threw two two interceptions right in his hands. Put him right there with Desmond Howard. Put him right up there with Super Bowl MVPs where it's kind of like, whatever happened to them again? So, yeah. So, Brady had won some Super Bowls that he should have lost. He lost some Super Bowls that he should have won. LeBron. As I mentioned before, the NBA Finals, he should have won. The NBA Finals, he should have lost. The 2013 NBA Finals against the San Antonio Spurs when he was with the Heat. Remember that? Remember that game? Game 6, 28 seconds remaining. The Spurs were up 94-89. League officials began bringing out the yellow tape, the cordon off the floor for the Larry O'Brien trophy presentation. The quote-unquote Heat fans started leaving the arena Thinking the Spurs were going to win the championship. Then what happened? LeBron comes down, makes a three-pointer. The pull then within two with 20 seconds left. Then key, key, key. But, uh, Kawhi Leonard missed one of two free throws, keeping the score of one possession game at 95-92. LeBron came down, shot a three-pointer. Right side rebound, back rim came to Chris Bosh. Threw it over to Ray Allen, standing in the right corner. His three-pointer with 5.2 seconds left. Buckets. Set the game in overtime, which the Heat won, then won a very uh, contested Game 7. Tim Duncan late missed the, missed the uh, easy shot, almost a layup. And uh, LeBron hit a couple of jumpers because they weren't giving him the lanes. So they were backing off, backing off. So LeBron was like, you're going to back off me? Okay, I'll shoot that 19-foot jumper from the left side. Bingo, bango, championship I remember Game 6. Remember the Heat fans were leaving then, when Ray Allen hit the shot to uh, bring the game in the overtime or put the game in the overtime, the cameras out there showed uh, the uh, so-called, quote-unquote, 
Heat fans running back trying to get into the arena. Remember that? Oh, fuck it. We lost. Oh, well, this, that, and the other. Let's go down to South Beach. What? Ray Allen hit a three. We're going to overtime. We're going to... Hey! Let us in! We're Heat fans. Let us in. We ride and die with our team. We, we knew Ray was going to hit that shot. We knew the game was going into overtime. Let us in! Yeah, whatever. So... That was one of the few times that Greg Popovich actually was criticized publicly. Because after the game, he was, you know, they were like, man, you went to a small ball ball lineup to defend the perimeter in the closing moments, being that they needed a three to win the game. Well, that was a decent strategy, but unfortunately, it left no one underneath the rebound. So when Chris Bosh got that rebound, passed it over to Ray Allen to shoot that corner three, I believe it was over Tony Parker, Tim Duncan was sitting on the bench. In fact, the first time that LeBron shot and missed, when it was 84-89, Chris Bosh got the rebound. Or no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Uh, One of the uh, late uh, uh, series, late possessions in the game, Tim Duncan was sitting on the bench when Chris Bosh got a key offensive rebound. So that was one of those where, you know, hey, it was like Coach Bob, Mr. Genius. What's happening on that one? Again, he won in overtime, won game seven, um, the Heat won their second consecutive championship in the next season. I think the San Antonio Spurs would have sold their mother down the river to uh, get revenge on the Miami Heat for what they did. That was uh, that was uh, that wasn't pretty. That was not pretty at all. That was we're gonna beat you and we're gonna beat you and we're gonna beat you and we're gonna beat you. And then after that, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna beat you violently. And that's exactly what happened. So. That was the one series where it was kind of like, yeah, LeBron. <laughs> Fortunate. Don't want you to term lucky. Fortunate. Then the 2016 NBA Finals against Golden State. The Warriors had no business losing that game. The Warriors finished that season 73-9. and They were up 3-1 to in the series finals against Cleveland. Draymond Green then got into a quote-unquote disagreement with LeBron James late in the fourth quarter after James stepped over him. In a very disrespectful manner to the uh, to the Michigan State uh, alumnus, Mr. Green, who then swung his arm and hit James in the private area, which caused him to be suspended for Game Five. It was late in Game Four. The Warriors were in complete control. They won Game Four, going away, no doubt about it. But again, Green missed Game Five. Cleveland swamped them. Came back for Game Six. They were never the same. Game Six and Seven. Cleveland got their mojo back. Kyrie Irving hit his stride, you know, and then that was all there was to it. Then it just came down to a game seven, and that was the game where LeBron made that block on Andre Iguodala. Kevin Love played great defense on an ailing um, Steph Curry, who I think pulled his groin in the playoffs, so he was far from 100%. And Kyrie Irving hit that right side three in the waning moments of the game, where under a minute left to go to give. Cleveland, their first sports championship, professional championship since 1964. So there you go. Those were the two wins on the championship scale that, again, could have easily lost. So when we're kind of trying to parch who's the athlete of the generation from from uh, from professional team sports, Individual sports, you got to throw in Roger Federer, about Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and yes, even a scumbag Floyd Mayweather Jr. into the uh, into the discussion. If you want to just go even farther, 
and just speak about athletes. Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps also needs to, needs to be in there. But, so just as far as team sports are concerned, comes down to the argument, I think, between LeBron and Tom Brady. So speaking about the legacy, what will it mean for Brady to win number seven? I, I think, again, we're, we're speaking about a guy who's 43 years old, a guy who was given a, a, a large responsibility by Leftwich and Bruce Arians on the offensive side of the ball. The Buccaneers threw the ball a lot more than they did running the ball. Brady was more than just a passenger on this conductor, on this train. So I, I think at 43 years old, the season that he had, I think if, thinking, I try to do that every once in a while. Hurt is good for your brain. Okay, I'll go ahead and say it. Fuck it. I think that if Brady wins this Super Bowl, number seven, winning it at 43 years old, takes the lead. I think he takes the lead. And I think LeBron would have to do more than just win his fifth NBA championship to uh, catch Brady if TB12 can go ahead and do this. I think LeBron would have to, if not win the MVP, be damn near close to it and then have the Lakers win that championship back-to-back fifth for him to uh, get back into the strong discussion of greatest athlete of their generation. But, like, Tom Brady needs more inspiration, right? Hey, uh, Tom Brady. Yeah, what's happening? Hey, I was listening to Wendell's World in Sports. Who? Wendell's World in Sports. Go with me. All right. He was talking about uh, if you win this championship, which would make number seven, he was saying, and I think it was a very good argument. I mean, he's very intelligent and articulate. His show is awesome. You should check it out on iTunes or anywhere where you listen to. Uh, get to it, will you? All right, I'm sorry, Tom. What I'm saying is that uh, he said that if you win Super Bowl number seven, that you should be in the lead for the greatest athlete of your generation ahead of LeBron. Really? Did he say that? Well, hell, let me go ahead and let me study a little bit more because Jesus fuck's sakes alive. If there's one person in this world I need to uh, make sure that his predictions come true, it's Wendell fucking Willis. Wallace. Wallace. Whatever. So. <laughs> I love when we make these. I love when people in my business broadcast the business or everything. We, we, we say this shit. And we make this stuff like these athletes are supposed to sit there and like take this shit to heart. <laughs> like what? He said that? Well, shit. Ain't no stopping me now. It's like, <laughs> now I'm really going to, you know, where's that wall so I can run through it? Ain't no stopping me now, baby. Shit. He said that I can't do this or I can't do that. Or if I do this, I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. He said that I'm going to be the greatest this and I'm going to be the greatest that. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, us assholes who are, in the, who are in the media and I shout out uh, thoughts and opinions for a living. Yeah, we give ourselves way too much credit. But uh, that's my feelings. That's my thoughts and opinions. Take it for what it's worth. But Brady wins Super Bowl number seven in his illustrious career. 43? Whew. We have a leader. We have a leader in the race in deciding who's the uh, goat for this generation. From Walnut Creek, California, or Northern California, San Mateo, California, I give to you Tom Brady.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hold on for a second here. Let me uh, let me uh, turn on the TV real quick. I'm recording this on a Tuesday afternoon, trying to get this done before the Nets play the Los Angeles Clippers tonight. But normally at this time here on the West Coast, they show old uh, episodes of Chopped on the Food Network channel and... Chop is one of my favorite television shows, along with guy, gro- Guy's Grocery Games and Diners Drive-In and Dives and Iron Chef America used to be it, but they don't show that anymore, doggone it. But uh, I love myself some Food Network, uh, I love myself the Food Network channel. Beat Bobby Flay, my man, can't uh, can't touch that. So let me see here, let me turn to the Food Network channel. Oh, 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 lucky me, lucky me, my neat children. Woo, it's one of the judges. Oh, and she's looking fantastic. That woman, I'm absolutely in love with that woman. Manny Chowdhury. Yeah, I know she's married and all that kind of stuff. When I say I'm in love with her, I mean that I'm just, you know what I mean? I'm not like in love, love with her, that type of thing. And, you know, I ain't like, you know, that type of, you know, sexual healing. I'm not that type of in love with her, but man, that is an attractive woman, man. Goodness gracious sakes alive. Woo, and when she has her, when she's dolled up and looking good, mm, mm. Even when she's cooking, she'll go on uh, one of these special shows or she'll be cooking on uh, guys' grocery games or something like that. So, she, you know, she's in her working clothes and everything. She looks attractive and fantastic. But when she wants to look good, woo, that woman is outstandingly gorgeous. Congratulations to her mother and her father and congratulations to her, to her husband, man. That is the woman where she says, jump, you say, how high? Man, you say, if you told me rob a bank, I would be like, give me the gun and the ski mask. Just don't leave me. That is a, that woman is beautiful. Executive chef, intelligent, and Arthur. That, that woman is just, mm. Every time I see that woman, man, it's like, stop what I'm doing and take a look at the beauty. Wendell's World in Sports. Yes, sirree. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. Getting back to the NFL. Matthew Stafford was traded this past weekend. Deshaun Watson was not traded this past weekend. Detroit traded the uh, quarterback to the Los Angeles Rams in exchange for two future first-round picks, a third-round pick, and Jared Goff. <laughs> How about that? In, in, in the order of importance, the Lions got two first-round picks, two future per- first-round picks, a third-round pick. Oh, yeah, and Jared Goff. Yeah, okay. Stafford will leave the Lions at their all-time leader in passing yards, over 45,000, and in touchdowns, 282. Now, Chris Burke of The Athletic reported that the Lions had seven or eight teams bidding at least a first-round pick for Stafford, but the Rams package was the clear winner. Interesting, though. One of the teams that Stafford... Uh, did not want to go to, would have rejected, according to Tom Curran of the of NBC Sports Boston, is the New England Patriots. The Patriots were the only team on Stafford's no-trade list. So the Patriots were reported to be the front-runners to land Stafford in a trade, but they were the only team he didn't want to play for and the only team he wouldn't accept a trade uh, as a trade destination. Wow. I don't know more if uh, the report was like, look, man, you know, I just went through a, I just went through a couple of years of Matt Patricia 
at the head coach as a Bill Belichick wannabe. And now he's going to be back on that staff. So I'm going to have to go back and deal with him again? Yeah, I don't think so. And, hey, man, you know, take a look at the teams. If you're taking a look at some of the teams that were interested in Stafford, Washington was interested. San Francisco was interested. A couple of more teams were interested. You take a look. It's like, what does New England have around as far as skill players are concerned, which a 32-year-old Matthew Stafford is going to be like, yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll do that. I'm quite sure it might have been attractive at first to maybe work with someone like a Josh McDaniels. But, I mean, you take a look at that team. Stafford's thinking about, look, I've got a couple of more years left in me. I mean, I don't want to go to a rebuilding situation. And if Tom Brady couldn't get a lot of success dealing with the New England Patriots, and then one year later he takes the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to the Super Bowl. I don't want to say take him to the Super Bowl, but he is on a team that makes it to the Super Bowl, and he's throwing the guys like Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and Rob Gronkowski and handing the ball off to Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette. And I'm going to the last place that he was uh, seen in New England playing football, playing in, uh, playing in the city of Boston, playing in the region of Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm going to be playing for that group of uh, skilled players. I don't think so. I don't think so. So, Stafford and playing for the Rams, hey, it's an immediate upgrade for L.A., gives them the best chance to win the Super Bowl in the next couple of seasons. You're speaking Cooper Cup, Robert Woods as his wide receivers. The Rams have a much better running game than the Lions do. With the Lions throughout his career, he only played for, he only played with just one 1,000-yard rusher, and that was Reggie Bush back in 2013. I wonder if he was uh, with Kim Kardashian at that time, or was uh, Kimmy with... Uh, Chris Humphreys, or who knows. But he played with only one 1,000-yard rusher in 2013, Reggie Bush, and one defensive unit that was ranked in the top 10 in scoring. So here we go with Stafford. He's going to join an organization much more stable, going to join a coaching staff much more stable, and he's going to be joining a team that is much closer to winning a championship than uh, Detroit. And he's going to be playing for a team that has a defense that's much better. When you have Aaron Darnold and you have Jalen Ramsey on the defensive side of the ball, if I'm Matthew Stafford, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's going to be joining a club that clinched a playoff berth in three of the past four seasons under Sean McVay, one of the um, top play callers and play designers and game planners in the NFL. The Rams offense also fielded a top 10 running attack in the three seasons that he's been here. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. In 2020, the Rams finished the top with the top scoring defense under former coordinator Brandon Staley, who accepted the job as the Los Angeles Chargers head coach a few months earlier. But you know, this was a win-win situation for the Matthew Stafford and for the Los Angeles Rams. And on top of that, this was a quarterback upgrade with a salary dump on the side. Because the Rams are going to inherit the two years and $43 million left on Stafford's deal, which includes $22 million in debt cap money. But it's a lot better than uh, that extension that they signed with Jared Goff. So you're getting a better player and you're getting him for uh, less money and you're getting a situation where that contract is not going to be an albatross moving forward. The Lions is going to take on the $17.8 million debt cap charge for Stafford, but it's a win all the way for the uh, L.A. Rams, and it signifies to the rest of those 
rest of that team in the locker room that, yeah, we're trying to win and we're trying to win right now. And it also was a signal for the fan base that when trading Jared Goff, the Rams were saying, yeah, that contract extension that we had him sign a few seasons ago, our bad, my bad. And who would have known for Jared Goff, the beginning of the end would come after his performance in the Super Bowl. It was like a situation where, damn, it's one year after being drafted or his rookie year after being drafted out of uh, Cal being under the tutelage of Jeff Fisher with the coach of the Rams. He looked like a bust. He looked like he didn't belong. Sean McVay comes in there, turns him around, schemes him beautifully, gets him into the uh, Super Bowl. But you saw the, uh, you saw the shortcomings. You saw the ceiling with the game against the, with the Patriots, which was one of the worst Super Bowls that I can imagine in a long time. Who gives a fuck if you're a Patriots fan because you won the game? But geez, man, it was a situation where it was like, yeah. The ascension to Jared Goff becoming a franchise quarterback. Pump the brakes, slow the brakes, because this game clearly shows that he ain't ready. Now, I guess the Rams are giving him that contract extension. The relationship that he was going to have with Sean McVay eventually could get him to that point, but it was quickly realized that, you know what? It ain't going to be happening. Heard reports, saw reports, read reports that in the end, like scouts or people close to the situation between Golf and McVeigh. It was a situation where, man, these guys like need a marriage counselor in terms of what the relationship is right now because it ain't good. It ain't good at all. And you heard some snipping and sniping between the two in the in the uh, pages of the press after the season was over when they lost to the Green Bay Packers. But 2020, through speaking of Jared Golf, through 20 touchdowns. 13 interceptions, but the greatest evidence that Jared Goff, his job as a starting starting quarterback in L.A. or for the L.A. Rams was almost over. The biggest, like, red flag or the biggest, like, aha, was in December. Remember when he broke his right thumb against the Seahawks and then he set out week 17 against the Arizona Cardinals and then John Wolford, some, some guy from Wake Forest who hadn't played football in a while, started and led the team to uh, victory. Well, in the wild card game against Seattle, although golf was cleared, cleared to play against the Seahawks, and you saw that he did play after Wolford got injured, McVay was like, no, nah, we're good. We're going to go ahead and we're going to continue starting Wolford. That right there should have been the, uh, like, oh, okay, yeah, this is, uh, either this ain't going to last long or this ain't going to work or something needs to happen. One of these guys have to go this, that, and the other, because John Wolford did nothing against the Arizona Cardinals to be like, oh, yeah, this guy can go ahead and um, and uh, beat Seattle. Oh, yeah, this guy should be the starting quarterback. Golf has his deficiencies. Golf has his limitations. But, geez, man, he ain't no damn John Wolford. Yeah, I guess uh, we were right. He's not John Wolford. Wolford is more preferred by the coaching staff and the head coach for the Los Angeles Rams. So if you're going to be passed aside for some guy named John Wolford, hopefully you're renting in the LA market, not buying. So the impact of the deal, speaking about the impact of the deal here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, with your truly Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with me. The impact of the deal between the Rams and the Lions and Stafford off the board. What are we talking about here? Because there's still teams on the market for a quarterback. 
Are you speaking about Denver, Washington, New England, New Orleans, Chicago, Indianapolis, the Jets possibly, the Falcons possibly, San Francisco? I mean, we're speaking about a third of the league is looking for a quarterback. Depending upon what the Houston Texans do, they can be put in that uh, category. So we're speaking about QBs that are still on the market or be, could be, you know, trade bait. Carson Wentz, Deshaun Watson, Matt Ryan, quarterbacks that could be drafted in the first round. Trevor Lawrence, of course, is going to the Jacksonville Jaguars unless something out of this world crazy happens. But, you know, Lawrence, Justin Fields, the quarterback out of Ohio State, Zach Wilson, the quarterback out of BYU, Trey Lance, the quarterback out of South Dakota State or North Dakota State, one of them Dakotas, Mac Jones, the quarterback for Alabama. So now we're taking a look at these teams that I just mentioned, the Denver's, the Washington's, the New England's, the New Orleans, the Chicago, the Indianapolis. New Orleans, by the way, I'm going on the assumption that Drew Brees is going to retire. So Denver, Washington, New England, New Orleans, Chicago, Indianapolis, San Francisco, possibly the New York Jets, possibly Houston. Which one of these teams are going to be looking for a veteran quarterback in a trade? And which organization is just going to say, fuck it, let's go ahead and get ourselves a quarterback? Now, of course, it depends on draft position or, or, and that type of thing. But which one of these teams are going to say, you know what, instead of trading to get ourselves a veteran quarterback, someone like a Jameis Winston, someone like a uh, Carson Wentz or someone like that, maybe get themselves a placeholder like Ryan Fitzpatrick or a Tyrod Taylor. Which one of these teams are going to say, you know what, let's use our draft, let's use our our, our um, assets that we have instead of going for a veteran quarterback. Let's see what we can do to move up in the draft to draft ourselves a quarterback. If you're someone like Washington who's, right now drafting at 19 or or, or or one of those situations. What are they going to do in terms of, as I mentioned before in the first segment of my podcast, if you're Cincinnati, how much do you entertain moving back? There's a lot of things that you need. Quarterback isn't one of them. Are you going to listen to a New Orleans? Are you going to listen to a New England? Are you going to listen to a Washington? Depending upon where the Broncos are at, are you going to be listening to to, a, uh, to the Broncos? What are you going to do? If you're the L.A. Chargers, what exactly are you going to do? You have yourself a quarterback. <clears throat> if you get to the uh, situation, you've got uh, Zoom call meetings, you've got workouts, you've got other things. You know the sooner or as soon as the draft hits and as soon as the draft comes up, there's going to be a team that's going to reach. We've always seen that. Teams are going to overplay, going to overestimate the quarterback in terms of the quarterback prospect. So which one of these guys is going to look at Trey Lance, and even though he didn't play last season except for one exhibition game, and the fact that the year before that he didn't throw any interceptions, but he was playing for a one A school. Which one of these guys, which one of these teams are going to take a look at his physical talents and take a look at the film from his junior year and say, yeah, I can turn this guy into a franchise quarterback. I can turn this guy into something special. So we need to go ahead and we need to do this and we need to get this done. Which team that needs a quarterback is going to do that? Which team is going to take a look at Justin Fields and say, that's my guy? Which team is going to take a look at Zach Wilson, who by all accounts is the most talented quarterback of all these QBs that are draft eligible with the exception of Trevor Lawrence. Which one of these franchises 
is going to try to entice the Bengals or the Chargers or someone like that to uh, take a boatload of picks or to go ahead and maneuver so they can get into a position to uh, draft one of these quarterbacks. And which one are just going to say we don't have the uh, ability to do that? Fuck it. Let's see what we can do to go after a Jameis Winston. Or let's see what we can do to go after one of those guys. It's call up Atlanta. See what uh, they're interested in. Let's see what see what their uh, plan is with uh, Matt Ryan. Ryan, is he going to be available? And if he is, what is the asking price? So it's going to be interesting to see. Carson Wentz. I mean, if you're in Indianapolis, I know that the Eagles just hired the offensive coordinator who worked closely with Frank Reich and hoping that uh, that can soothe the worries and the eagerness for Carson Wentz to get out of town now that Doug Peterson is gone and they brought in someone who has close ties to Frank Reich, who I believe that uh, he worked with Carson Wentz when that regime, offensive coordinating regime, was in Philadelphia. So let's see if that makes any type of difference. But is this a situation where if you're Howie Roseman, do you go ahead and say, I'll listen. I ain't giving Carson Carson Wentz away, but I see how much Matthew Stafford went for a couple of first and a third and and that type of thing. What do you got? It's got to be at least that. We're talking about a guy, Carson Wentz, 25, 26 years old, still has a lot of potential left in him. You got to give me something a little bit more than what the Rams gave the, the Lions for Matthew Stafford. So I'm quite sure that Roseman is uh, Rosen is out to listen. So what's going to be the asking price? Which team is going to uh, ask, inquire about Carson Wentz out of the teams that need a quarterback? Someone like the Pittsburgh Steelers, possibly. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And Deshaun Watson, to end this segment, is still with the Texans organization. Another reason why Watson should be doing everything humanly possible to get away from the Texans organization. Did you read this story by Mike Florio, Pro Football Weekly, or Pro Football Talk? Mike Florio, multiple league sources believe that the Texans will keep Cully, David Cully, the guy they just hired, will keep him in place for a couple of years and that he will retire, quote-unquote retire, and be replaced as the head coach by Josh McCowan. McCowan is expected to become the quarterback's coach on Cully's staff at first and then become the offensive coordinator. The next step would be becoming the next head coach. Goodness gracious sakes a lot. That's that's the plan? If I'm Deshaun Watson, that's the plan? Serious? That's the plan that you were that you're eager to, to tell me about. That's supposed to get me to be like, oh hell yeah, I'll stay for that. That gives me hope. That's the light at the end of the tunnel. That's what I should be high fiving people for. That's what I should be doing the boogaloo for. That's what I should be dancing on the ceiling for. That's what I should be dancing in the streets like Martha and the Vandellas for. That's what I should be doing the Beyonce for. That's what I should be doing the kid and play for. Come on, man, give me a fucking break. Don't be, don't be wasting my time with some bullshit like that. Now you understand why I want to leave this fucking organization. So you don't, you, you don't pay attention to anything I say. You don't listen to anything I say. You were bullshitting me on that about you really want to listen and have my input. That was a lie. That was bullshit. That was nonsense. That was disrespectful. And this is the plan that you come up with. I don't know anything about David Cully. 
Hell, maybe David Culley is the 65-year-old Bill Belichick. Who knows? I don't know. But damn, man, if that's the plan, outside of winning a Super Bowl, which if you take a look at this roster, even with Deshaun Watson, they ain't close. Even with Deshaun Watson, the, 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 the talent on that team is so bad that not even Deshaun Watson could save them from a 4-12 and record. So now you're going to tell me that I'm going to be spinning my wheels for a couple of years knowing that the coach right now is not really going to be the coach for me in the next, what, three to four years? Are you kidding? Are you joking? Are you trying to be Richard Pryor? Are you George Carlin? Are you Chris Rock? Are you Dave Chappelle? What the fuck's the matter with you, man? And you expect me to sit there and be like, hey, hey, hey. Nah, man, get me the fuck out of here. Get me the fuck out of here. And as told by Florio in the report about eventually Cully being a placeholder, you give the black man, so he's like a glorified intern for a couple of years, interim coach for a couple of years. So you give the black man, the coach, the, the, the head coaching position with the understanding that in a couple of years, you're, this, you're just keeping the seat warm and you're grooming your replacement. <sighs> so the story told the Florio, the report told the Florio, it's believed to be part this whole Josh McCowan being the head coach and waiting type of deal. It's believed to be part of the broader structure that executive VP of football operations, Jack Easterby, is installing. Easterby wanted Nick Casarius to be the GM. Easterby got him. Easterby wants McCowan to be the head coach, and Easterby will get him eventually. Easterby, if you remember from a previous podcast that I did, this guy started off at the at the team chaplain for the New England Patriots. Then basically became a gopher for Bill Belichick then went to the Houston Texans organization and was the only one left standing when um, Bill O'Brien got fired and everything. So he got in the ear of Cal McNair. Now those guys are, are buddies. And now Easterby, who has no experience as a GM, no experience of VP of football operations, has no experience in scouting, has no experience with the salary cap, has no experience of being in the locker room and in, 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 uh, in, in any official capacity in terms of uh, dealing with the players on a business-to-business basis. None of that. None of that. None of that. None of that. Again, for those who want to sit there and say, well, damn, Deshaun, damn, Deshaun, tell me where Deshaun Watson is wrong in all this. Jack fucking Easterby, the guy that when he was this past season with the Texans, whenever the Texans would decide to make a, a move of any consequence or any impact or anything like that, Easterby would gather around the people working for him, and before the deal would be made, they all got in a circle, held hands, and prayed about it. This is the guy that Deshaun Watson wants to entrust his career with? Will he see what sees what his contemporaries are doing? Where he sees what Baker Mayfield is doing, where he sees what Josh Allen is doing, where he sees what Lamar Jackson is doing, where he sees what uh, Patrick Mahomes is doing, and he's right up there or just as good with the exception of Patrick Mahomes, he's just as good or better than any of those guys, and this is what I'm dealing with? Damn, you got Lamar in a strong structure in Baltimore, Baker's in a really good structure now in Cleveland, Josh Allen is in his perfect place in Buffalo. 
McCown, I'm sorry, Mahomes hit a home run to where he ended up, and I'm fucking stuck here? Fuck that shit. So, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. Deshaun Watson, whether it's the Jets, whether it's the 49ers, whether it's the New Orleans Saints, everybody says that for the Texans, the best place for him to go, if you want a win-win situation, if you want to get the most out of the trade value, is to trade him to the New York Jets. And despite having a no uh, trade and no, no trade clause in this contract, Watson has said that he is open to going with the Jets. If I'm the Texans, and I'm not, but I don't, I don't see where if things are truly past the salvageable stage, trade the man to the Jets. Trade him to the Jets. Get that number two pick. Then you can go ahead and draft yourself the next quarterback of the future. Probably won't be as good as Deshaun, but it's something. It's better than nothing. I don't know what you could get from the 49ers or anybody else if you're the Texans. And this game of chicken, who's going to blink first, Deshaun or the Texans? What what good would it be to uh, call Deshaun Watson's bluff? What good would it be for your organization? What good would it be for the league? What good would it be for your bottom line? What good would it be for the players in the locker room? What good would it be for your head coach? What good would it be for the quarterback coach who's the coach in waiting? To have the scenario, to have the nonsense, to have this bullshit in terms of every single fucking day for the Houston Texans. You're a player, you're a coach. And every single flipping day, you have to be asked the question, where's Deshaun? What's happened with Deshaun? Have you spoke to Deshaun? Do you know what's going on with Deshaun? Do you know when Deshaun's going to show up for work? What's happening? What's going on? And then the players every single day have to deal with the media asking, what's your thoughts about Deshaun? Do you wish Deshaun was here? Do you, do you, uh, uh agree with Deshaun? Are you backing Deshaun? How are you, how are you going to win football games dealing with that? And then if you do quote unquote win, and Deshaun comes back a disgruntled, I don't want to be here, Deshaun. That's your answer for the Houston Texans turning it around? Doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it sucks. 25-year-old, prime of his athletic prime career, potential Hall of Famer, a guy who, in like Dan Orlowski said, for the next 10 to 12 years, every single game that you're in, you have a chance. No matter how small, no matter how slim, you have a chance to win because you have Deshaun Watson. You have that regardless of who else you have around them for the next 10 to 12 years. Yeah, it absolutely sucks to give away someone like that. Someone who could be the face of the fr- Perfect for being the face of the franchise. Good looking young man. God-fearing young man in the in, in that region of the country, charity work, community work, dream come true, a gift from the heavens. Yeah, it sucks to bring to uh, get rid of someone like that. Low management, not a diva, not a cancer in the locker room, well liked and respected in the locker room. Guy will go through the wall for this guy. Yeah, it absolutely sucks. Those guys don't come around every year. Those guys you can't draft every year in the second round or the third round or late in the first round. Special players, man, no doubt about it. Giving him up sucks. And I can understand you'd move heaven and earth. If I'm Cal McNair, 
I go to Deshaun Watson. I go to his peoples. I go to his lawyer. I go to somebody. I go to his agent. I go to his mama. I go to the last chick he banged. I go to somebody and say, please, just tell me what we need to do. Outside of me selling the team, what do we need to do? Do we need to get rid of Easterby? Gone. Do we need to get rid of Caceres? Gone. Do we need to fire David Cully and get Eric B. Enemy? Done. Anything that this man wants to do, please tell me, and I will do it. And I will go to the... I will go to my last breast by saying, this was all me, this was all me, this was all me. We can not even report that we had a discussion. We can not even report any of this stuff. Basically me groveling and begging and letting Deshaun make all the fucking moves. Please, just tell me what we need to do. Tell me. I ain't too proud to beg. Like I'm the temptations, man. That's what should be going on. But... Outside of that, don't be waiting for Deshaun Watson to blink. Something telling me that uh, he's dug in pretty firmly. And that press conference that they gave, talking about the player, the player. His name is Deshaun Watson. You might want to say it. You might want to say Lord Watson. You might want to say Mr. Watson without Sherlock Holmes. You might want to bow down. When you say the words Deshaun Watson, you might want to go to where he lives and put up signs, a neon sign saying, we, we love you. We need you. We want you. You might want to hire some folks to find out where he's walking so they can go to that place and throw rose petals on the ground where he walks. Outside of doing all of that, he ain't coming back. He ain't playing for this team. And if you're going to sit there and say, oh yeah, we're going to make him play. Congratulations. You won the battle. But a disgruntled Deshaun Watson, you ain't going to win the war. So my advice, not that they want it, not that they need it. Guys are making a lot more money and a lot more educated in this situation than me. But damn, man, if you're the Houston Texans, do the right thing. Trade Deshaun Watson and then move on. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Right now, I want to get into what I promised, something that I'm going to be doing every single podcast for Black History Month. Of course, I want to uh, spotlight some black athletes throughout this uh, country's history, just to uh, educate, just to uh, let folks know in terms of, uh, you know, the education Always said it before, always meant it. The fact that, you know, to, to, to move this country forward, yes, we need laws without without uh, question. But people, I think, are more important than laws. We, we can have laws all they want to, all we want to. But if we don't have respect 
if we don't have unity, if we don't have the, the foundation uh, for just being able to cope and deal and live and be around each other, then what are laws going to do? Laws don't mean anything. So you can put in all the laws you want to about, excuse me, about fighting discrimination and bigotry and oppression and all of those things. If we don't have an understanding of each other, if we don't have the knowledge of each other, then those laws mean nothing. Laws can't change people's hearts. Laws can't change people's mind. Laws can't change people's feelings. People can. Education can. Learning can. Being amongst each other can. All of those things can. So a, a law is not going to solve racism in this country. Law is not going to change gender equality. Laws are not going to do those type of things. People are. We are. You are. I am. And the more that we learn, the more that we grow, and the more that we understand these things, the better that will be. So the foundation of change, the foundation of people changing their hearts and their mentals and their feelings about each other starts with people. So as I mentioned before, it wasn't a situation we black folks didn't gain the didn't gain the advantages or didn't gain the uh, the things that we have right now because white people were sitting around going, you know what? Let's give black folks a break and let's go ahead and let's do this, that, and the other. No, of course not. There ain't no white folks out there for the most part, especially in the power structure. They ain't giving up nothing for nobody. Shoot, it wasn't white folks who got us out of Jim Crow. It wasn't white folks who changed the opinion for us to stop being lynched, to get us off the plantations, to move us into the communities, to move us into the neighborhoods, to put our children in the same school districts as yours, to uh, have black folks marry white folks and for a decent amount of people have that be okay. That wasn't because white folks all of a sudden had a change of heart and came down to the plantation, or came down to the segregated cities, or came down to the fair and unequal, and said, you know what, guys? We've changed our minds. Come on, all of a sudden now, we're going to improve your schools. We're going to improve your conditions. We're going to make it so you guys have the same amount of opportunities that we do. Come on down. Number one, that hasn't happened yet. And number two, the strides that were made for that were done for, but done mainly by black people. <laughs> so... Yeah, so Black History Month is extremely important because we should never forget, especially when we're educating the younger folks who luckily don't have to go through the same bullshit that I had to, the same bullshit that you had to, the same bullshit your parents had to, the same bullshit your grandparents had to, the same bullshit your great-great-great-parents had to. Luckily, because of our strides, because of the contributions, because of the sacrifice of black Americans, including black athletes, the generation that's coming after me and the generation that's coming after them, they're a lot farther ahead in understanding and in unity and in love and togetherness and equality than uh, than we ever are, than we ever were when we were their age. So we have to keep the ball moving. We have to keep it going forward. So, yes, Joe Lewis is the guy for my first podcast of the month of February is who I'm going to be talking about. Joe Lewis, of course, reigned as the world heavyweight champion, boxing champion, from 1937 to 1949, during which he participated in 27 championship fights 
As an American hero, he was widely regarded as the first black person to achieve the status of a nationwide hero within the divided, racist, selfish, ignorant states of America. He was also the focal point of an anti-Nazi sentiment leading up to and during World War II. If, if you remember, man, heading up to World War II, it was one of the most, speaking about the mask-smelling Joe Lewis fight over at Yankee Stadium, June 22nd, 1938, man, that was one of the most important American historical events and top three sporting events in American history. That was a situation where, yeah, man, you need to be talking about that. You need to be talking about those things in your history classes. You need to be talking about those things in your high school and middle school history classes without a shadow of a doubt. Because outside of the Jesse Owens uh, 1936 Olympic performance in Germany in front of Hitler, Outside of the July 4th, 1910 fight of the century between Jack Johnson and, and, um, wow. Wow. Hold on for a second. The 1910 between Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffries, a fight which was the fight of the century. Outside of those historical events, as far as sports are concerned, uh, the miracle on ice and all that other nonsense doesn't come close to the importance that this fight had in society had on our history as World War II was starting to was starting to go. So yeah, man, the, the remax of Max Schmeling and Joe Lewis, nineteen thirty eight, June twenty second, Yankee Stadium. On the far side of the ring now, Max with his back to the rope. And Lewis hooks a left to Max's head quickly. And shoots over a hard right to Max's head. Lewis, a left to Max's jaw. A right to his head. Max shoots a hard right to Lewis. Lewis to the old one-two. The first to left and then the right. He's landed more blows in this one round. Then he landed in a five rounds of the other fight. And there, Max Schmeling caught him with his guard down. And tossed that right hand to Lewis's jaw. But Lewis was going away with a punch at the time. Now Max is backing away against the ropes. Lewis is following him and watching for that chance. He is crowding, smelling. Smelling is not sitting around very much. But his face is already marked. And they stepped into a fast clinch. And at close range, Lewis fights desperately to bring up a left to the jaw and a right to the body. And coming out of that clinch, he got over a hard right and then stabbed Max with a good straight left jab, and Max backed away, and missed the right, Lewis then cracked him with two straight lefts to the face, and brought over that hard right to the head, high on the temple, and Max tied him up to the clinch, and broke ground, his back against the ropes again there, not too close to the ropes, Lewis out, and Lewis missed with a left swing, but in close, brought up a hard right over the and a right to the jaw, and again, a right to the body, a left hook, a right to the head, a left to the head, a right, Snellick is going down, but he held to his knee, held to the rope, looked to his corner in helplessness, and Schmeling is down. Schmeling is down. The count is four. It, and he's up, and Lewis, right and left to the head, a left to the jaw, a right to the head, and Donovan is watching carefully. Lewis measures him, right to the body, a left up to the jaw, and Schmeling is down. The count is five. Five. Six. Seven. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Max Schmeling is beaten in one round. And there you have it. Two minutes, six seconds, first round. It's interesting. I was watching a Sports Center years and years ago on ESPN about Joe Lewis. 
so many really great documentaries about Joe Lewis on YouTube. I mean, there's about four or five of them that just do an excellent job highlighting his life and those type of things. And, um, of course, I've seen them all plenty of times. And it was interesting because his son, Joe uh, Lewis Barrow, he was talking about that fight between Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling, the second fight. The fact that he had survivors of the Holocaust come up to him later on in life and they told him what your father did in beating Max Schmeling. It, it gave me the strength. It gave me the courage to survive the Holocaust because in my mind, hearing that Joe Lewis won gave me the strength, gave me the hope to say, you know what? We're going to get through this. We're going to uh, be able to uh, be able to get through this. Some shit like, are you fucking kidding me, man? Damn, man. Joe Lewis with a boxing and a boxing match. Just think about that in the year 2021 or 2020 or 2015 or somewhere even in the 20th century, 21st century, man. Could you imagine the impact? A guy, a heavyweight champion of the world having that type of impact? The fight that, the, the fact that the, before the fight, Roosevelt called for Joe Lewis to come to the White House, felt his muscles and said, these are the type of muscles that we need to beat Germany. The impact that the heavyweight champion had, the social distinction that the heavyweight champion had back in those days, and the fact that people cared so much that the heavyweight champion was a black man, that have that type of stuff go on, the heavy, a, a boxer? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you're talking about an American hero, freedom fighter, civil rights leader, before all of that stuff was even brought up in the lexicon. I mean, that was Joe Lewis. He was instrumental in integrating the game of golf, breaking the sports color barrier by appearing under a sponsor's exemption in a PGA event in 1952. Now, when he got there and he would go to the hole and he would sink the putt or whatever, when he would go to get his ball, he would see that there was excrement in the, uh, in the hole. You know, just folks' way of you know, we ain't all down with this. But he was the guy that integrated the army. He was a guy that uh, volunteered for the army and gave exhibitions and helped out in World War II and those type of things. I mean, this was, he was the father and foundation of for the integration of baseball and Jackie Robinson. Before there was Jackie Robinson, before Branch Rickey even thought about integrating baseball. I mean, it had to be, it had to be Joe Lewis. It had to be what Joe Lewis went through for, America to even think of the idea of any type of integration that blacks were equal on any platform, any way, shape, or form. Just one guy. Just one guy. Just one man. Before that, you had Fritz Pollard. Before that, you had Jack Johnson. Before that, you had, uh, you had others. But nobody, nobody moved the needle to where it would be even acceptable for Branch Ricky to even come up with the idea of bringing in a black man to integrate baseball if it wasn't for Joe Lewis. So yeah, without Joe Lewis, there is no Jackie Robinson in terms of the impact that he had in integrating the game of baseball. He was the foundation for the civil rights movement. He was the foundation for Martin Luther King Jr., Medgar Evers, and others who fought 
and died and bled for this country so black folks could have it better, so black folks could advance, so black folks could get over segregation, so black folks could do something about institutionalized segregation, degradation, oppression. Three-fifths of a man, separate but unequal. Joe Lewis was the foundation, was the impetus for all of that. And here's a man when early in his career, when he was uh, when he would be announcing the ring, the announcer would say, "Although colored, although colored, you know, standing this that and the other, weighing this that and the other, Joe Lewis. I mean, the nickname itself, the Brown Bomber, has racist overtones. He was hounded for years by the IRS for back taxes. He was called an Uncle Tom in the cello by his own folks, by a, a younger generation at that time, Ali." When he was under the uh, gaze, when he was under the uh, um, under control, when he was hypnotized, when he was being influenced by that gang, by that cult named, known as the Nation of Islam and its, and its pseudo-leader, its false prophet, Elijah Poole. Nothing honorable about that piece of shit. But he was being called a sellout in an Uncle Tom by those in the Black Panthers. For those who were more aggressive and militant, you know, you if you uh, if you grab our hand, we're gonna break your arm. That 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 type of thinking during that time, because he was so placid, because uh, he was so uh, hey, you know what? I, I don't agree with uh, violence. I don't agree with those type of things, and because of that, I don't b- believe in separation, like the Nation of Islam and what Ali was about and all those type of things at that time. So he he was vilified by his own people. And it took from getting under the spell cast by the uh, the thugs of Islam or that that, that that cult before he came to realize the importance of people like Joe Lewis and and uh, Jesse Owens. So yeah, man, I'm just spotlighting. Go take a look. Go ahead and um, take a look. It's a, a fascinating story. It's a true American story. And uh, when he died, I remember because he's buried in Arlington Cemetery. But I remember my mom taking me to the wake to, uh, to to view his body when he died in 1981, when I was a young kid, because she knew the importance of what Joe Lewis meant. Never be another one like him. Won't Doesn't need to. Doesn't need to be someone like a Joe Lewis, because we've advanced so much in the country to where, you know, the stuff that Joe Lewis had to go through and everything that Joe Lewis was all about. I mean, luckily, we've advanced in the country to where you know, a lot of the shit that he had to go through would be completely unacceptable from most of the country. So, yeah, go take a look at a lot of the Joe Lewis documentaries, man. The guy, an incredible American hero. In fact, I just to end this discussion, there's an interesting conversation that went on in a barbershop in Queens, New York, about the... Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, uh, who was a better boxer? Who was a better fighter? It, it was it was very interesting here in this barber shop here in Queens, and uh, the barber made a really some really good points. And actually, it was incredible because the barber had some insight on Joe Lewis that I think very very few people had. And I think this is also something that you should listen to in terms of educating yourself. Listen to what this old-timer said about 
Joe Lewis, about Rocky Marciano, and a fact or an interesting point about the age of Joe Lewis when he fought Rocky Marciano and when he asked this fella exactly how old is Joe Lewis. You must be out of your goddamn mind. Joe Lewis, the greatest boxer ever lived. I'll be with you boys in a minute. He was bad in Captain Clay. He bad in Sugar Ray. He bad in that. Who that? You, the new boy. Mike, Mike Tyson looked like a bulldog. He bad in him too. He done whipped Mike Tyson's ass. He whipped all their asses. What about Rocky Marciano? Oh, there it go. There it go. Every time I start talking about boxing, a white man got to pull Rocky Marciano out their ass. That's the one. That's the one. Rocky Marciano. Rocky Marciano. Let me tell you something wonderful. Rocky Marciano was good. But compared to Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano ain't shit. He bit Joe Lewis's ass. That's right. He did whoop Joe Lewis's ass. Joe Lewis was 75 years old when he fought. I don't know how old he was, but he got his ass whooped. Joe Lewis had come out of retirement to fight Rocky Marciano. The man was 76 years old. Joe Lewis always lied about his age. He lied about his age all the time. One time, Frank Sinatra comes out here and sat down in this chair. And I said, Frank, you hang out with Joe Lewis. Just between me and you, how old is Joe Lewis? You know what Frank told me? He said, hey, Joe Lewis, 137 years old. 137 years old. Oh, man, you ain't never meet no Frank Sinatra. Fuck you. Fuck you and fuck you. Who's next? There you go. 137 years old, fighting Rocky Marciano when he was 76. Who does that? It's unbelievable. Unheard of. Chokes me up. <coughs> oh, man. For those who don't know, that was Eddie Murphy coming to America. Cannot wait for the sequel. I'm a little nervous because the uh, original or the first one was so awesome that the uh, originals or the sequels never live up to the uh, first one. But, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But, uh, for real, Joe Lewis, truly, truly, truly an American icon. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with me. I'm so glad that I can be with you. Last segment of the podcast, or as Phil Henry would say, the netcast. Want to thank you very much for hanging in there with me. Want to thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you very much for downloading the podcast. Thank you very much for being you. Thank you very much for being a decent human being. Thank you very much for being a good human being. Thank you very much for being a solid, compassionate, education, open-minded human being. Woo, Lord, do we need more of those. Every single day, every single minute, every single hour. Positivity, positivity, even in a negative way. Positivity, man, positivity. It, it keeps you younger. You know what I'm saying? It, Keeps the wrinkles away. Not that I would know. Keeps the wrinkles away. Keep the good looks going. You know, do it for your spouse, man. Do it for the longevity of your life, man. The Lord gave you X amount of years to live. Let's see what you can do to uh, maximize that. Let's see what we can do to get close 
to the amount of years that the Lord said, you know what, man, when you're born, I'm going to let you stay on this earth for, I don't know, 80 years. Now it's up to you to uh, get to that number, depending upon lifestyle and depending upon other things. You know what I'm saying? If I've got, I don't know, man, my dad lived to be 90. My mom is 80 something years old. So let's just take the medium. All right. And if I'm scheduled to be living 85 years tops. I've got 30 something years left. Tops, I say lifestyle, everything. I've probably taken like, I don't know, five or six years off my life, you know, uh, stress, food choices, all that type of stuff. So I've probably taken like, you know, about five, six years off my life. So in the remaining time that I have on this earth, before I, uh, transition, die, whatever you want to call it, end the life, end my existence. Let's see what I can do to be the best human being I can and to uh, help those who uh, need to be helped in terms of education, in terms of uh, unity and all those type of things. So that's my uh, that's my goal. So if I'm here for another 30 years or 30 seconds, I'm going to see what I can do about that. And you should too. One of those world of sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Let me end with this. The Brooklyn Nets, speaking about the NBA, the possible NBA championship contending train wrecks. <laughs> I just, I don't know what else to say, man. I don't know what else to say about this team. Now, I'm trying to get off this podcast because in about 15 minutes, they're going to be playing the uh, Los Angeles Clippers. So I don't know if this is a situation where they don't give a damn playing the more inferior teams. I don't know if they're just going to be focusing on the good ones. Their defense can't get any worse. If they play the same type of defense against Kawhi and PG that they played against the Wizards, man, they're going to give up 160 tonight. So I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see exactly. They have to be embarrassed. Kyrie, James Harden didn't play, but I mean, you know, James Harden didn't come to this squad, didn't force his way out of Houston so he could be bounced in the second round again. If he wanted to do that shit, he could stay in Houston and sign a two-year contract worth close to a hundred million uh, 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 total. So I don't know, man. I mean, it's just a matter of, I don't want to bury the, 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 the nets just because of how talented they are, especially offensively, but goodness gracious, man, what the fuck was that against Washington on Sunday? Again, I watched the game. I DVD'd it. Then I watched the replay the next afternoon and it was worse than what I thought before. So, according to Sean Sereni of The Athletic, the New Orleans Pelicans have reportedly narrowed their potential trade destinations for J.J. Redick. They're down to Philadelphia, Boston, and Brooklyn. Tell me, man, what, why, how, huh? What, what role, why would J.J. Redick, how would J.J. Redick, what, what? What what exactly is J.J. Reddick going to do for the Brooklyn Nets? He's 36 years old. He's averaging eight points a game this season, all off the bench. That's his lowest scoring average since the 09-10 season. He's shooting 33. He's shooting 30 percent from the three-point line, which would be by far his worst percentage in his 15-year career. With with New Orleans, he's seen his role decrease. He's getting a lot of uh, DMPCDs or barely getting in. He's averaging about 20 minutes per game before going on the bench the last two games that I mentioned before. I get there as a, uh, I get there as a, uh, you know, mandate from the ownership or from, uh, 
David Griffin to Stan Van Gundy about, you know, let's see what we can do about getting some more time for our younger players. So that comes at the expense of J.J. Redick. Really doesn't matter. J.J. playing, not going to be the difference between the Pelicans making the playoffs or not. But again, why, why, why would the Nets be interested in another outside shooter who can't defend anybody? Again, they already have a player like that on their team. A better version of that. His name is Joe Harris. So what, what's, what, why, how, what? The Nets need a big man. The Nets need a big man. The Nets need a front court guy. They don't need another shooting guard. I also heard reports that are after Kevin Love. Why are you going after Kevin Love? Kevin Love, I mean, the guy who can't stay healthy? The guy who's missed time? Good, good, amount, of, good amount of time for Cleveland the, next, the last couple of years? Now he's been sidelined with a calf injury? That's going to be the guy? And again, who's Kevin Love going to guard? Now, he can get you some rebounds, but what rim is he going to protect? You need somebody to back up DeAndre Jordan. DeAndre Jordan are now with the situation where the Nets, because of uh, getting harder, they had to trade away uh, Jared Allen. Um, DeAndre's going to have to play 18, 22 minutes, somewhere around there, 15, 20 minutes a game. So 28 other minutes are going to have to go to something. You can't play Kevin Durant at the five position. You can't play Jeff Green 24 to 28 minutes at the center position. You're, you're going to need somebody. If you're going to go small ball in certain situations and maybe try to squeeze four to five minutes, three minutes, maybe anywhere between three to five minutes as Kevin Durant being your center, maybe Jeff Green being your center, You've got 18 minutes going to uh, DeAndre. You've got three to five going to Jeff Green. You've got three to five going to Kevin Durant. Who's going to play the rest of those minutes? You need somebody. You need somebody who's going to block out. You need someone who's going to rebound. You need someone who's going to protect the rim. You need somebody. You need somebody who's going to go up against Joel Embiid. You need somebody. You're going to need somebody to keep Christian Thompson off the boards. You're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, you're going to need somebody. You're going to need somebody to deal with DeMontis Sabonis. You're going to need somebody for the Nets. I mean, the idea of trying to outscore everybody and win basketball games, that might work in the regular season. But when the playoff comes, and you're going to try to see what you can do about Bam and the Bayou. Ask the Boston Celtics how that worked out when they didn't have anybody in the playoffs to deal with him. Ask how their season turned out. Ask how that playoff series turned out. People want to sit there and say, J.J., or excuse me, people want to sit there and say, um, Tyler Hero, Tyler Hero, Tyler Hero. Man, the key to that run for Miami last season was more Bam than Tyler. So, yeah, the the big man in this game might not be like it was back when you had Moses and Artis Gilmore and Kareem and Bob Lanier and those guys. But damn, man, you, you need somebody to protect the rim. See last season's Houston Rockets. Shit doesn't work. And for the ultimate prize, if you're the Brooklyn Nets, because going in with James Harden and these guys mean that you're going to want to, you're going to try to go for a championship. Who in the fuck is going to guard Anthony Davis on that team? Would you going to ask Kevin Durant to guard Anthony Davis and turn around and score 30? You're going to ask Jeff Green to play significant minutes against Anthony Davis? Shit ain't going to work. It's not going to work. So I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand the, J.J. Reddick talk. Maybe it's just bullshit. I don't know what it is. I can understand the Celtics. I can definitely understand the 76ers. 
being interested in another outside outside shooter. The Nets don't understand it. Don't understand it. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So what big men are the Nets going to be pursuing? They've got some, uh, they've got some maneuvering that they can do. I've heard names like Robin Lopez, Hassan Whiteside, Jonas Valanciunas, uh, Kevin Love. I've heard another trade opportunity where the Nets and the Orlando Magic are going to try to be working towards something where Aaron Gordon is going to get to be a, a net again, athleticism there. But I mean, are you going to try to play? I mean, how small do you have to go for small ball for him to be your center? He's a, he's a power forward trapped inside a small forward's body. Is that going to be the answer? And then for the Nets to give up Dinwiddie, Tyler Johnson, Nicholas Claxton, Phoenix 2021 second round pick, and then uh, Indiana's 2021 second round pick. I mean, the picks are not a big deal because they're in the second round, but yet still, man, you're also going to need a bench. You're going to play Kyrie and KD and James Harden 38, 42 minutes in the playoffs, sure. But in the regular season, that's what's going to happen if you go ahead and you, you know, you, you, uh, trade off all of your, your depth. It might not be great, but it's something. So Landry Shamit, Timothy Cabarou, Bruce Brown for Robin Lopez. If you're the, if you're the Nets, do you do that? Landry Shamit, Timothy Cabarou for Hassan Whiteside. Do you do that? Joe Harris for Jonas Valanciunas. If you do that, you might as well try to get JJ Redick. But if you're the Nets, do you do that? DeAndre Jordan, Joe Harris, Landry Shamit, Jeff Green for Kevin Love? No, 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 no. What in the hell would that do? What in the hell would that bring? I don't know. They're, I mean, when they're rocking and they're rolling, the Nets can be a fun watch, but that was just such an ugly performance on Sunday against the Wizards. They just didn't care. I mean, it's like the whole team was infected by James Harden 2016 defense-itis. It was kind of like, oh, you beat me. All right, go ahead. It was like James Harden on the initial guard, he's fine. He's trying. When he was doing his, when he was his YouTube most embarrassing defensive performance type uh, uh, era for James Harden, he would try initially. But after that, he was like, screw it. So if you... You know, if you tried to go after him initially, it would be fine. But as soon as you cut the ball, he guarded you, and then you pass it off, and then you cut, or you moved, or you did something. James was like, screw it, I ain't doing that shit. Go ahead, I ain't, I ain't, uh, <laughs> I ain't bothering with that shit. So if you wanted to cut that door, if you wanted to make a hard cut, if you wanted to go set a screen, if you wanted to move to an open area, I mean, you could do that because Harden was like, look, I'm only going to guard you once on this possession. So either you try to score on me right now or you pass it and do whatever. And it seemed like with the Brooklyn Nets on Sunday, that's exactly what they were doing. The transition defense was beyond embarrassing. Kyrie Irving gave absolutely no resistance to Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook is back. Russell Westbrook is back. Yeah, he hit some three-pointers. That's a bad omen because he ain't going to be hitting those all the time. 
in the pull-ups, he hit a couple of those that were like, yeah, here we go. But for the most part, he was just bullying his way to the basket. And Kyrie was like, once you get five feet, I'm just going to give up and let you have it. Fuck it. Fight, fight, fight. Get the five feet. All right, then we're done. Eh, fine. Fuck it. Score it. Go ahead and score. That's, that's what you're killing on? I don't know, man. If the Nets against the Clippers tonight, if they give up 125, is that going to be like a defensive, uh, you know, a magnificent defensive performance? They got to do something. I see this every, I say this every podcast, netcast, when I speak about the Brooklyn Nets. They got to do something. They got to do something. They got to do something. No, but for real, they got to do something. And who knows, man? Maybe tonight against uh, the Clippers, they try. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I don't know about those guys. Going to try to outscore the other team. That's their deal. Thinking outside the box and doing it with a coach of Steve Nash who's never been in that position before. All right. All right. It'll be an interesting experiment. We saw the first experiment of outside the box thinking in terms of basketball with the Houston Rockets over the last couple of years. Got them close, but it didn't win them a championship. Um... The traditional way of playing basketball, where you're playing a seven-footer in the paint and you do it that way, unless you unless you have a Wilt or Kareem or something like that scoring, I can see where that could work, but not in today's game in terms of having anything less than that. I mean, a good thing about Jokic and Embiid is they are bringing the big man back. Denver needs to start winning a little bit uh, more, but you know, with Joel, the way that he's playing, you know, and with the Sixers in the position that they're in, yeah, it's good for the league to let people know that, yeah, there's actually a way where a big man can uh, thrive. But uh, I don't know, man. We'll see. We'll see. All right. I am out of here. I am done. Be safe. Be good to each other. Love, peace, unity. I'm going to end every podcast in February on a special dedication for Black History Month with the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. So that's going to be my deal for the entire month. So, man, for those with a good heart, for those who are looking to do well, for those who are looking to help each other, for those who are looking to be a positive force in this world that we live in, love y'all, man. Love y'all so much. And thank you so much. All right. Music.
Chase me.